When the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. May our testimonies be as deep and as strong as that of Jacob, who when confronted by one who sought to destroy his faith, declared, I could not be shaken. Hello to all of you wonderful Unshaken Saints out there. I'm Jared Halverson. Welcome back to Unshaken. And welcome back from Rome. Uh, we had a two-week whirlwind tour of the book of Romans. I hope you survived it. There was so much deep doctrine there, faith and works and grace and law and proving contraries and finding Goldilocks zones, judges and despisers and so many amazing things in the book of Romans. I hope you enjoyed it. But we are now heading east and we are going to spend the next month plus in Corinth in southern Greece. The next three weeks will be in 1 Corinthians, and then we'll spend a couple of weeks in 2 Corinthians. These letters are amazing, and I hope you get a sense of for what's going on among the Corinthian saints, because it's so relevant to what's going on today. In fact, in some ways, it all boils down to location, location, location. And if you can understand the location of Corinth in Greece, I mean, Paul spent a year and a half there on his second mission, and so he got to know the area really, really well, and he knows what's going on, he understands what the saints are up against, and he's going to address some issues very directly in the two letters that we're going to be studying. But back to location. If you look at a map of the Mediterranean, at the, go, go, go to Athens, that's easy to find in Greece, and then head west, and there's this tiny little stretch of land, it's an isthmus that connects Oh, the Peloponnesus, I believe it's called, to the west, kind of this larger landmass, uh, to the rest of Greece and then on to mainland Europe. And because it's an isthmus, it's this narrow little bottleneck. In the Book of Mormon, they talk about the narrow neck of land. Well, Corinth was on a narrow neck of land. And as a result, if you're going west to east over land, or north to south, or northwest to southeast, technically, over sea, you're all going to end up in Corinth sooner or later, okay? And so as a result, it becomes this amazing cultural melting pot. The city had actually been destroyed like two centuries before Paul is there. So it wiped out. And then a century later, so about a century before Paul comes, it had been rebuilt by a decree from one of the Caesars. And, and so you have all these newcomers coming in from all over the empire. And it really does become this cultural melting pot. But that means there's going to be linguistic differences and background kind of cultural differences. And, and like we saw in the last two weeks in, Ro in, in Romans, there's this potential conflict. Well, not just potential. There's a straight up conflict, a lot of friction between Jews and Gentiles or Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians trying to become Christian Christians. And that was hard. Well, we're going to see similar problems in Corinth because it's this melting pot. And so many people are coming together uh, and trying to become one Unity will be a challenge, and Paul's going to address it head on. Another thing, because of its location, because it is, again, so many people coming and going, if you're not going to be in a spot for very long, nobody knows you, nobody, nobody remembers you after you leave, it's easy to feel like you're going to, you can get away with things and it's not going to ruin your reputation, because I'm not known. I mean, if you think about sailors are infamous for immorality, unfortunately. Any sailors out there, I'm not blaming you. But historically, sailors have been seen that way because well, you just kind of pop into port and then sail off as soon as you're, you're done with things. 
And unfortunately, a lot of immorality can come as a result. And Corinth was a port town big time. I mean, it's on the northern side of the Isthmus, but it's so close. There's actually a tiny little canal that connects. It, it was built, I think, in the late 1800s. But this almost like, think about the Panama Canal that we're trying to get across from Atlantic to Pacific or vice versa. And this is the narrow neck of land in the Americas. Well, in ancient Greece, Corinth is this narrow neck of land. And if you're trying to sail from oh, the Aegean to the Adriatic Sea, for example, uh, it's easy to dock in Corinth and start spreading your, your wares if you're a trader, or unfortunately spreading some immorality if, if that's what you're in town for. There's going to be issues with, with chastity, morality, and so on. And that's another issue that Paul is going to address head on. Now, like I was saying about trade, because it's a trading center, and anybody who's coming from, from Italy to the west or Asia Minor to the east, uh, that's the sea travel. Or if you're going from Peloponnesus to mainland Greece, that's the land travel. You're going to pass through Corinth as well. And as a result, there's a lot of people making a lot of money. And then you have the haves and the have-nots, and so there's now going to be these social strata and the rich and the poor and everything in between that can also add to the divisiveness problem that we saw because of this cultural melting pot, but it can also add, uh, bring on a lot of pride and a lot of materialism, okay? Because we're trying to get ahead. We want to get rich. Uh, and then the fourth thing to think about, so one, unity is going to be a problem because everybody's mixed and mingling there. Number two, Morality can be a problem because come and go and nobody has to know what I've done in town. Three, materialism and pride is going to be an issue. And fourth, and this is a huge one, especially in 1 Corinthians, intellectualism is going to be a potential problem. Because just to the east of Corinth is Athens. And although Rome was the political capital of the empire, Athens was still the intellectual capital of the empire. When you have people like Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle in your background, uh, remember when Paul went to Athens and he climbed up Areopagus, was there on Mars Hill, and was surrounded by philosophers, Epicureans and Stoics, that were up there because they always wanted to talk about some new thing. It was questions in avoidance of answers rather than in search of them. Remember what Paul will say to Timothy about ever learning and never coming to a knowledge of the truth? Well, that describes the ancient philosophers. That describes what's going on in Athens. Now, we don't have any letters of Paul to the Athenians, but we do have two letters of Paul to the Corinthians, and Corinth is the closest city that gets a letter to Athens. In some ways, it's like Athens' little sister. And so the kinds of challenges you'll see in, in Athens, you're going to see in Corinth as well, and Paul is going to address that head on. If you were to take modern examples of things, take a city like New York, where everybody's coming into town from all over the world. It's a, a cultural melting pot. Well, welcome to Corinth. Take a city like Las Vegas. No offense to any of you saints in Vegas. But the fact that it's nicknamed Sin City mm, tells us something. And what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. Okay? When it comes to materialism and, and pride, well, take your pick as far as modern examples. Maybe we're back in New York for that one. Maybe we're back in L.A. Uh, whatever it might be, though, to, I'm trying to get ahead, I'm trying to make money. And then fourth, if it's intellectualism, maybe now we're in Boston. Because Boston with Harvard and MIT and Boston College and Boston University and so many top-notch schools, well, it's easy to let that go to your head as far as intellectual pride is concerned. 
In fact, my brother-in-law, one of my spiritual heroes, close, close friend, he, he was a student at Harvard. He went to the Divinity School and then decided to switch gears and went to the business school after that. And he was an elders quorum president in, uh, as a young adult uh, when he was there at Harvard. And it was amazing the caliber of, of young people that were there getting a, a world-renowned education as, as Latter-day Saints, ready to go spread the, the, what, they'd, what they'd learned and what they'd gained through the rest of the world and build the kingdom right along with it. Well, that was the ideal. But unfortunately, part of the real that my brother-in-law saw was a lot of intellectual pride that led people deeper and deeper into academia and shallower and shallower in the faith until some left it. There was even a group of Latter-day Saint Harvard students that created what they called the Outstitute to, as a way to push back against the Institute. I don't want to go to the Institute. We're going to talk about scripture and spirituality in some kind of naive, childish way. Oh no, we're far beyond that. We've progressed beyond it. We've climbed Areopagus and, and we're ready to talk about some new thing. And so they would kind of self-select and come together and, and form this outstitute. I was an institute director at the time when I heard this, and it just broke my heart to think that that pride was leading people in that direction. It reminded me uh, of the quote from President Ezra Taft Benson, where he said, the two types of people that have the hardest time following prophets are the proud who are learned and the proud who are rich. Not the learned and the rich. There's no problem learning. It's the glory of God is intelligence. And richness, or rich, riches, or wealth, are not a problem in and of itself. It's the, the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money itself. And so the proud who are rich and the proud who are learned. Common denominator, pride. And again, welcome to Corinth. Because they are amassing wealth and are becoming proud as a result. And they are amassing intellect, intellect and, and knowledge and wisdom and they're becoming proud of that as a result as well. And then, like I said, couple it with the immorality, couple it with the conflict and contention that arises over dividing lines. And, well, welcome to the Corinth First Ward. We've got some problems here. And again, because Paul knew the area and the saints there so well, he's going to address, address these issues very, very directly. I will say this too, and then we'll dive into the, not just Corinth, but into the letter to the Corinthians. Back in Acts chapter 18, when Paul is heading off on his second mission, he's specifically told by the Lord, Be not afraid, but speak, and hold not thy peace. For I am with thee, and no man shall set on thee to hurt thee. And again, that's going to be important for him to know. He's going to use some strong language in this letter. He's going to cry repentance and try to stir people up to change, kind of, kind of force them out of their complacency and their pride. And he needs that reassurance. God will be with him. No one will be able to hurt him there. And then this wonderful reassurance, for I have much people in this city. And we'll meet some of those people in the next month. Amazing saints that somehow, despite the fact that they were living in a place of incredible divisiveness, they were seeking unity of the faith. Despite the fact that this was a place of, of sin and immorality, they chose to be chaste themselves. Despite the fact that this was a place of materialism and pride, they remained humble and were able to give to others around them. And despite Athens just to the east of them, they were able to maintain a level of intellectual humility so that they could be teachable, that they would rely on revelation and not on reason alone.
So wonderful Corinthian saints, just like there are incredible Latter-day Saints today in New York City and in Las Vegas and in Los Angeles and in Boston and all across the world. So you ready for Corinth? Let's dock uh, and, and come ashore and let's see what's going on as we get to look over the shoulder of the Corinthian saints and read along with them what Paul has said. We're going to start in chapter 1, verse 1, with Paul's salutation. Just like we saw a salutation in the book of Romans, here's another one in this first letter to the Corinthians. He says, Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. So I'm not here because I want to be. I'm here because the Lord wants me to be. Remember back in John 15 when Jesus puts the apostles in their place and says, You haven't chosen me. I've chosen you and ordained you to bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain. I've got high expectations. Well, Paul is feeling that. And so I'm here speaking because God wills me to. And it's not just me, it's also Sosthenes, our brother. So here's my mission companion, or my companion in writing this epistle. And I'm writing it unto the church of God, which is at Corinth. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Beautiful opening for this, to this address. And notice his target audience. I'm writing to you Corinthian saints, this church of God. The Greek word there is ecclesia, where we get the word ecclesiology or ecclesiastical, church-related. But the, the Greek word actually just means assembly. And Corinth actually had an assembly already, but a political, a civic one. That was the civic ecclesia. And what Paul, they've got theirs, we've got ours. We're going to have a different kind of assembly here. An alternative community that are choosing to do things differently than everyone else here in town. We're going to be in the world, in Corinth. We can't become of it, okay? Because the Lord is calling us to be saints. He's asking us to be different. Like we saw in Romans, don't be conformed to the world. Instead, be transformed by Christ. And that's what the Lord is trying to do to them. That's why Paul says it. You're called to be saints. You're sanctified in Christ. At least you're getting there, I hope. Grace be to you. Peace be to you. From the very beginning, I'm, you're going to need that grace. And I hope that you will feel the peace that comes in fully giving your life over to the Lord, because that's what I'm going to ask you to do. Because I recognize there are some challenges here. I was going to get to those in just a moment. Verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything you are enriched by Him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. So before we get into some chastisement, let's focus on some praise. And like we saw in Romans, your faith is world-renowned. Everyone knows about it. Here, what he is amazed by and what he thanks the Lord for is the grace that God has infused them with. Remember, grace means enabling power. And what has the grace of God enabled these Corinthian saints to become? Incredible, incredible disciples. The way he describes it, in everything ye are enriched by him. I mean, forget the, the temporal riches that people are trying to amass in this, in this trading center. You are being enriched by the grace of God to become incredible people, and specifically, utterance and knowledge. And those are very Corinthian things. They are very Athenian things, right? The knowledge, the worldly wisdom, but also the utterance of being able to speak 
the, the rhetorical prowess. Uh, and you get, like I said, Socrates and, and Plato and Aristotle. You get Cicero from a Roman side. You get these incredible speakers, the Roman orators, the Greek philosophers. And so being known for utterance and knowledge, you can picture these Corinthian saints going, oh, okay, we are, we are well known for something. Well, careful, don't let it go to your head. Okay, pride is going to be a problem. He then says in verse 7 through 9, so that ye come behind in no gift. And I love that thought, that if, if this is a place where there's differentiation and dividing lines and stratification within society, unfortunately, pride is an issue because everybody wants to leapfrog the competition and look down on other people. And the last thing you want to be is behind the crowd that everyone else is getting ahead and I'm falling behind. And, the, and Paul's reassurance, you're not behind at all, at least not in the things that really matter. You have come behind in no gift. Think about the spiritual gifts. And Paul's going to talk about that for a whole chapter later on. Uh, I guess that's next week. But you haven't fallen behind because the grace of God is enabling you, enriching you. And think about the timing, the timing of all of this. You come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think of this in a, in a millennial context. Think of this in the last days. That's why it's so applicable to us. As we are waiting for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ ourselves, who shall also confirm you unto the end. He's going to help you stay faithful, confirm you that you're in the right place, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the hope. Now, to be blameless on that day, it's going to require a lot of repentance along the way. And so, yes, Paul is going to cry repentance, and he's going to start pointing out places where they need that repentance in just a moment. But for now, please remember this, Paul says, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The faithfulness of God, he's in this with you to the very end. So hold on to him, stay firm in the faith, allow him to continue to enrich you by the gifts of his grace so that you really can be the saints he's calling you to be, so that you can be sanctified the way only Jesus can sanctify you. Well, what do you have to be sanctified from? Well, let's start there. Are you feeling okay about yourselves so far? Because I need you to know that what I'm about to tell you is coming from a place of love. That there's, there's mercy and there's grace and there's compassion and there's patience, but there's also divine expectations. And you're falling short in a few areas. First of all, verse 10 and 11, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And that's the first problem that we identified based on the location, location, location of Corinth. Cultural melting pot, yeah, yeah, a lot of cultural divides between people. And even though people have taken upon themselves the name of Christ, they're holding on to earlier identities. And it's causing a lot of friction and conflict. Think about what Jesus does the, f the first day he shows up in, in the Americas, in 3 Nephi. He introduces himself so they know who they're listening to. 
But, and he clarifies that Nephi has authority and, and begins to clarify the means of baptism because there had been contention over that issue. Later on, he clarifies the, the name of the church and what should be called because there was contention about that issue. Later on, he talks about discipline and, and maintaining the sanctity of the sacraments. And he does that because there was contention on that issue. Three rounds of disputation. Remember last week in Romans, he, he warned against doubtful disputations. Well, among the Nephites, they were doctrinal disputations. But the fact there were disputations at all, that was a deal breaker as far as the Lord was concerned. Contention is of the devil, he says. It's not of me. So even if you have good goals, if you're going about it in the wrong way, then you're doing it wrong. And that's got to change. Paul is pointing out the same thing here. We, it's like President Nelson's most recent conference talk. We have to overcome contentiousness. We, we have to become peacemakers. And for us Corinthian saints, here's the, here's the counsel from, a, from an apostle of God. Perfectly joined together. Not just, oh, a token handshake at church on Sunday. No, we need perfectly joined. Why? Because we're trying to establish Zion. And how is Zion defined? By its unity. One heart, one mind, dwelling together in righteousness. No poor among them. Oh, all of those elements of unity are going to be hard to come by in a place like Corinth. Now look at verse 12 to 16. This is a fascinating form of division and contention among the saints. Now this I say that every one of you saith. So I'm just going to quote what I've heard. And it sounds like I'm hearing it from everybody. I mean, Chloe, this person we met in the previous verse, we don't know much about her, but the fact it's a her is a beautiful thing. She, Paul is getting this letter from the house of Chloe. And so is the house church meeting there? Is she a prominent uh, ancient day saint there in Corinth? Is she the Relief Society president of the Corinth, Corinth First Ward? Perhaps. Well, she's heard, he's heard from her that all of you are saying things like this. Fascinating statements. I am of Paul and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Now, what are they saying here? It's interesting because historically, Corinth has this massive amphitheater. I mean, again, if you're going to be known for knowledge and utterance, then you're going to need a place to show it off, right? And these star orators would come to be able to make these massive orations and theatrical performances. And if you are a fan of a particular performer, can you picture them at this amphitheater shouting out, I'm of Socrates, or I'm of Cicero. Well, it's happening among the saints, and they're chanting the names of apostles and missionaries? Are you serious? Can you imagine going to general conference? And there we are in the conference center, and the first president in the Quorum of the Twelve is sitting in the, in the big red chairs up front. And, and imagine if there was a, a difference in applause when each new apostle is is announced that they're going to be the speaker. And people start shouting, I am of Elder Holland, or I'm of Elder Bednar. And the, the German saints all shout out in unison, that I'm of Elder Uchtdorf. The Brazilians are there cheering on Elder Suarez. It's like, really? Are you serious? I mean, in sporting contests, you get home crowd and away crowd, and they're shouting over, you know, cheering for or cheering against, and you can tell uh, which side people are on. Within the faith? At church? And they're all claiming allegiance to particular apostles over others? So we've got the, the Nelsonites versus the Irenites versus the, the Gongites? I mean, really? 
In fact, think back to Zion, which is they're trying, what they're trying to build, and the Zion that was established in 4th Nephi, how is it described? There was no manner of ites. All the dividing lines disappeared so people could have a true unity of the faith. That's what Paul dreams for Corinth, but they're nowhere near. So we've got Paulites and Apollosites and Cephasites. That's Peterites, okay? And hopefully, that last group, I wonder if Paul is just hinting, that's the group we should all belong to. I am of Christ. That's who we should be following. No lesser divisions here. In fact, he asks the pointed question next. Is Christ divided? And the Greek word there translated divided actually comes from a word that means, that has party elements. Like think about p political parties and, and dividing blue and red or left and right, conservative, liberal. Is Christ just another party? And you're going to go to the convention and shout some slogans and cheer on certain candidates. We're not trying to elect people here. I'm here, an apostle of Christ, at the will of God, as he said in the first opening line of this letter. I didn't come on, on a campaign stop. If anything, I'm campaigning for Christ and Christ alone. Christ is not divided. He keeps going with these rhetorical questions. Was Paul crucified for you? Come on, why, why would you cheer me on? I'm nothing. I'm pointing you to the Savior. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? And again, of course not. You were baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. I was the one performing the ordinance. In fact, I wasn't even the one performing the ordinance. He says, I thank God that I baptized none of you. Oh, well, but Christus and Gaius, fine, I baptized them. But nobody else, lest any should say that I had baptized in my own name. As if I was trying to create some kind of Pauline kingdom. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, I guess, wait. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. Okay? I, I love that he's even backing away from claiming participation in those ordinances because he doesn't want, he doesn't want the glory going to him. Can we stop, well, first of all, glorifying mere mortals when only to God goes the glory? But also, can we stop dividing over who we're giving that glory to? Sigmund Freud came up with an interesting phrase, psychologically. He called it the narcissism of small differences. Now, there's big differences that are obvious. And again, if it's a cultural melting pot, there's going to be some major conflict and friction uh, in Corinth already. But in the church, we've got a lot more in common. We have taken upon ourselves the name of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to be of him, Christians. But what Freud was pointing out is that for some reason, human nature, human psychology... We want to stand out. I mean, there's a part of us that wants to fit in and be part of the group. And hey, hey, we're all part of the church. And we're not like those wicked people out there that haven't joined. But then once you're in and there's a certain level of conformity, then the other side of us wants to be different. I mean, there's a contrary there too. Conformity and diversity. How much do I fit in? How much do I stand out? And among the same, well, among any fairly homogenous group, what Freud was pointing out is, Weird thing about human nature, you still want to stand out from people that you have so much in common with. There's still going to be an internal pecking order, even if you've separated yourselves from some kind of external pecking order. And it's narcissistic, fascinating comment there from Freud. It's, 
It's staring yourself in the mirror. It's loving what you see. I want to stand out. There's the narcissism. But it's standing out on the basis of such infinitesimally small differences. I sometimes feel that way when I do interfaith dialogue with other Christians. Remember last week or two weeks ago when I was talking about walking down the sidewalk with an evangelical Christian. We can do this together. We have more in common than we have apart. But there is this narcissism that I'm on the, I'm on the better side of the sidewalk. And they're saying, oh, no, no, I'm on the better side of the sidewalk. Really? Can we not all be Christians? Well, of course we're all Christians. But I am a, a, a Petrine Christian. I'm of Cephas. Oh, I'm, I'm a Pauline Christian. Uh, how about you? Oh, I'm of Apollos. And we're actually going to see more of that Apollos influence, at least the possibility of it, as we turn from the first problem, which is pride and division, to the second problem, which is going to be a pride in intellectualism. We're going to get there in just a moment, but hold on, okay? He just mentioned baptism, and then go to verse 17. Paul says, For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel. I wish more of our full-time missionaries would make that focus of that, or that shift of focus. I mean, yes, I've been called to, to baptize, but it's not like I'm trying to get one more notch on my belt, as if I'm kind of some race to a trophy that how many people did you baptize? The worst is when I hear people say, how many baptisms did you get? What? That you got? That's what you were doing this for? To get a baptism rather than to help a daughter or son of God make a covenant with Christ? Wow, we've, we've lost something if that's the focus. For Paul, it wasn't about those external things that honestly depend on someone else's agency. It was more the internal drive to allow people to exercise that agency. I'm not responsible for their reactions, but I am responsible for my actions. And so I am called to preach the gospel. And he did it as intensely as he possibly could. But then he describes how he did it. And now we're going to start making the shift from the first problem to the second. Okay? This second problem is going to run through in the entire second chapter, but he gets into it here near the end of the first. So I'm not here baptizing. I'm here preaching but I'm preaching not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. Now, think about what he's saying there. I'm not going to preach with worldly wisdom. Because in some ways that cancels out the cross of Christ. It cancels out the crucifixion. How does that work? Well, think about, about it in these, in these terms. How is someone going to gain a testimony of the gospel? If I'm preaching it, my hope is that my preaching will be persuasive. But persuasive in what way? There's a uh, vocabulary word we need to add uh, to, our, to our, our list here. And the word is epistemology. I've used it in prior lessons. It's a, it's a technical term that simply means the study of knowledge. Or how do we know what we say we know? That's what epistemology is. And in the scientific community, there's a very narrow, very strict epistemology that it has, to be it has to be experimental, it has to be empirical. You need proof that can be repeated in a lot of different circumstances by other people. You need that kind of oh, empirical proof that you can weigh it and measure it and see it and taste it, that experiment upon it. That's what Alma was getting at with the experiment upon the word. Because someone like Korahor is demanding that kind of proof. Okay? 
There are other kinds of epistemologies uh, in terms of deductive reasoning, for example, or inductive reasoning, and from a philosophical standpoint, how do we arrive at truth? And what can I deduce from things? How am I figuring things out? And my logic and my reason, I can arrive at some kind of conclusion. It's not the same empirical proof that a scientist would give, but it is what philosophers are kind of left with. Well, what's the epistemology of, of religion? Is it measure and weigh? Well, what scale are you going to put God on? Nothing's big enough to wrap itself around him. Okay, all eternity. Uh, is it just a matter of logical deduction and I can prove things and when all is said and done, it's obvious that this is religious truth. Well, that, we might be getting closer to something there. Uh, but then the reality for religion is, oh, well, it's non-provable in those ways. How do you arrive at a knowledge of the truth? Well, it's going to have to be in a spiritual epistemology. There's, if you want to know about God, well, it, it seems reasonable that God should be part of the process of discovering him. And so what's his approach? How is he expecting you to come to know him? Well, think about why Christ came to be crucified. He came to suffer for our sins so that we could become worthy, that we could be washed clean of those sins. It's that repentance that allows us to become worthy of the presence and companionship of the Holy Ghost. When we're baptized, those sins are washed away. It makes us clean enough for a member of the Godhead to become our constant companion. And it's through that spirit. That's the spiritual epistemology. Jesus came to allow us to learn in different ways. Christ, who could have proven everything empirically. I mean, if you want to prove the, uh, the atheists wrong, all God has to do is reveal himself in a scientifically empirical way. If he wants to convince all of the rationalists, he just has to become imminently reasonable until it all makes sense. No question marks left. But to the spiritual, the people that, who God is trying to change and help them develop Christ-like attributes along the way, there's going to be a particular epistemological model that God is going to confine himself to and again, Jesus, yes, performed miracles, but not to prove himself. No, you receive no witness until after the trial of your faith, right? Faith precedes the miracle. And that miracle, that sign, then comes to confirm faith, not to initiate it. And when it came to logical reasoning, Jesus, who was omniscience embodied, chose to tell simple stories instead about sowers planting seeds, wink, wink, hint, hint, nudge, nudge, in hopes that people would cultivate their own minds and hearts until they were open to the revelation of the Spirit. Even the crucifixion of Christ was his way of stepping aside so that the Spirit could come. He told the apostles that. And then it happened in Acts chapter 2, day of Pentecost. You understand what Paul is deciding to do here? And all of chapter 2, he's going to focus on this. And so I really want us to understand from the very first hint of this. Corinth, you sister city to Athens. I can't let you climb some local Mars hill just to start cheap, 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 talk a lot, pick a little more. Like we said back in Acts chapter 17. This cannot just be some rush for some new thing. And some intellectual... 
the, those who are intellectually arrogant, that want to show off their worldly wisdom, that will not be me. Otherwise, that cancels out the cross of Christ. I'm not going there. And especially, and, and even by saying it that way, he's, he's proving his point. He's, he's pushing something in, before the, the Corinthians here. It's fascinating. Because the next phrase, next verse, for the preaching of the cross, and that's what he just mentioned. I don't want the cross of Christ to be made of none effect. But here's the problem. The preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved. It is the power of God. Those of us that have eyes to see and ears to hear, that we're humble enough to open our hearts to a spiritual approach to truth, we had that truth confirmed to us. It opened our eyes. It changed our souls. And we are seeing the power of God in our lives. Proof's in the pudding. By their fruits ye shall know them. And this power, oh, it's all true. It's not just that the gospel is true, it's that the gospel works. Look what it's doing for me through its divine power. But for you who haven't experienced it, who aren't humble enough to open your hearts to that, what do you call the cross? You call it foolishness. And that is, actually both of those words are fascinating. The cross would be considered beneath people for a couple of reasons. If you're Jewish, then you believe from the Old Testament that cursed is he that is hung on a tree. And so the fact that, Je I remember Peter talked about this, and Paul had talked about this in the book of Acts, where they're preaching Christ crucified because they had to reassure a Jewish audience, Jesus wasn't cursed. He, he's, he, he is the Messiah. He just wasn't the Messiah you expected him to be. Not a military Messiah. But the fact he was crucified was not the end of the story. In fact, it was really just the beginning. Resurrection is what we're the witnesses of. That's to the Jewish audience. To the Greek audience, from a Hellenization culture, especially during the, the Roman Empire, the cross is what's used to crucify society's scum. The worst kind of public execution in Rome was crucifixion. So you bring that up, and that's talking about, well, we're here to preach lethal injection. And they're like, what? Well, because the Messiah was lethally died by lethal injection. They misjudged him, thought he was a criminal, and he was publicly executed. I mean, that sounds weird in our modern ears. Well, preaching the cross of Christ sounded weird in ancient ears, whether Jewish or Greek slash Roman, to the point that they considered it foolishness. There's actually a, one in the writings of Cicero, the great Roman orator, he pointed out that even using the word cross was offensive to most people that would listen. And so it's like, no, we're not going to talk about this. And to consider it foolishness, I don't know if the English there from the King James translators is strong enough. Because the Greek word translated foolishness is moria, and that's where we get the English word moron. You ever been called a moron? Yeah, that's, that feels worse than somebody telling you you're acting foolishly. It's like, you're, you're an idiot. You're a straight-up moron. Are you really that dumb? I've actually asked my students, have you ever been made to feel like an idiot or, or less than intellectually because you have faith in Jesus Christ and the restored gospel? And most of the hands go up. To see people, again, in the sister city of Athens, where intellect, reason reigns supreme, and you, you believe in the cross of Christ? Did you not hear it's a joke? Well, now the joke's on you. 
You're the butt of it. And in some ways, no wonder antichrists like Korahor used the word foolish as often as they could. No wonder the people in the great and spacious building pointed the finger and mocked those who were partaking of the fruit of the tree of life. Why? Because they couldn't rip the fruit out of our hands, but they could mock us, call us morons, until we drop the fruit ourselves out of shame. You see what Paul is up against here? And yet Paul is, is embracing that and putting it, pushing it right back into their faces. The very thing you consider idiocy, I know as inspired. The very thing that you consider moronic, I know to be the truth from God himself. It's amazing what he's doing here. But to do it, he's not going to use the wisdom of man's words. Because that's relying upon their instruments. And he's got better instruments of his own. Christian ones. Forged at the cross of Christ. Hold on to this because we're going to see it repeated verse after verse after verse. The, the, the overall concept in chapter 2. But to get there, keep reading chapter 1. Verse 19. For it is written, and here he's going to quote some scripture. It's mostly Isaiah 29, but with a bit of Isaiah 19. Maybe a little hint of Isaiah 33. Remember, Paul knows his Old Testament inside and out. But it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. So I don't care if you're an Epicurean or a Stoic. Worldly wisdom isn't going to last that long. The Lord will destroy it and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. So here's a few questions for you. Where is the wise? What's become of him? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And, and those words, wise and scribe and disputer, is what everybody wanted to be when they grew up in a place like Corinth. If you have any kind of intellectual leanings, then yeah, I want to be worldly wise. A scribe is not just somebody who writes stuff. It's an expert in scripture. And a disputer, oh, that's a public debater. And so much of the ancient art of rhetoric, and it was one of the most important things people would study in schools in the ancient world, was how can I speak in a sufficiently convincing way that I can win every argument? We don't, do, we don't value that as much in our day. If you think about the oratory of the, the famous Senate speakers in the, in the 19th century, for example, the Clays and the Calhouns and Webster's and so on, when you think about Lincoln and, and his, the power of his speech, to me, it's interesting to, and again, Sharon in the Book of Mormon, perfect knowledge of the language of the people. That's honestly why I, the more I studied how people attack faith, the more I realized I need to study rhetoric, because that's how they do it. How do I say things in such a way that you'll feel moved to leave your own beliefs, since I can't disprove them rationally? Okay, it's going to be rhetorically instead. And to see disputers and scribes and the wise and Paul is, he's not afraid of any of them. In fact, he's so unimpressed by their epistemological model and their rhetorical approach. He chooses to avoid fighting with their weapons because he sees how dull they all are. In fact, if you think about this in terms of intellectualism, and honestly, 
it's one of the reasons I love Elder Maxwell so much. My oldest son's middle name is Maxwell. And honestly, the older I've gotten and the more academic I've become in terms of grad school and PhD work and, and now you know, in academia myself, the more I've come to value Elder Maxwell's intellectual gifts. He was an academic himself. All of the apostles are incredibly smart and very well educated. But an academic, I mean, he was a university, I mean, he taught, he was in administration. And I'm amazed at how much of his, of his teachings were aimed toward the intellectualism that, that tends toward intellectual pride. The proud who are learned, who refuse to be humble enough to follow the counsels of God. To be learned is good if they will hearken to the counsels of God. That's what Jacob warns us about. And Elder Maxwell warned us about it all the time. Honestly, his sermons, his teachings have aged incredibly well. And especially if you are of a certain intellectual bent, the Mormon intelligentsia is kind of what it used to be called. But Latter-day Saint intellectuals, Elder Maxwell is still probably your apostle. I am of Elder Maxwell. Careful about that. Okay, right? We, we listen to them all. But this thought on, on Paul's part, I'm not going to go that route. I'm not going to out-intellectualize you. I'm going to show you what the divine epistemology looks like. And I'm going to try to do it in a humble way to model the humble approach you're going to have to take to get there. I'm actually struck at times when I'm in an, a purely academic setting. To me, it's, I, I, I'm at a great place that combines the best of Athens and Jerusalem. BYU, to me, is a wonderful home base because we seek learning by reason and by revelation, by study and by faith mind as well as heart. It's a place where contraries are being proven in terms of how we learn. Okay? We're academics, we're intellectuals, but we're spiritual and we're open to the revelation first and foremost that will come from God. But when I go to academic conferences sometimes, honestly, it feels like the emperor's new clothes. Like a bunch of smart people are strutting around, totally uncovered, but feeling like they are bearing the mantle of intelligentsia. And there's times I'm like, man, what are we doing here? Are we helping anybody or are we showing off to each other by spouting off these, these our, our vocabulary and using big words to, to share small ideas? I'd so much rather use small words to share big ideas. I'd rather be understood. I'd rather help People come to a knowledge of the truth. I'm not an Epicurean. I'm not a Stoic. I, I, I don't like hanging out on the top of Mars Hill. I prefer Paul's approach. And I'm actually struck by something that President Hinckley prayed for when he dedicated the religion, the religion building on campus at BYU. It's the JSB, the Joseph Smith building. And as part of that dedicatory prayer, and I believe it's printed and hung, hanging on a wall in the JSB to this day, but he prayed for this, among other things. May there be an absence of intellectual arrogance. Oh, can you imagine? 
in academia, an absence of intellectual arrogance? No, we're smart. That's how we got to this point. We're smarter than other people. We're trying to, to get other people to be almost as smart as us. Oh, careful, careful. Can you, can you feel the intellectual arrogance dripping off comments like that? President Hinckley prayed for their absence. Rather, he prayed, may there be that humility which comes of recognition that man with all of his knowledge and understanding, shares only a feeble light when compared with the wisdom of the Almighty. Oh, I love that. It inspires me every time I walk into that building. And I am grateful to be surrounded by colleagues who intellectually are incredible, but who spiritually are even better than that who are humble enough to learn from each other and humble enough to learn from prophets and apostles who know the wisdom of the Almighty better than we do, but have closer access to it because of their divine callings. Now, oh, that's a prayer that Paul could have been praying in Corinth. In fact, he was. And we'll see him continue to teach it as we move forward. For example, verse 21. For after that, in the wisdom of God... The world, by wisdom, knew not God. Now again, Paul's language, he loved wordplay. So he'll often repeat the same word and kind of twist it in an ironic way. So here, slow it down, make sure we get it, that it was wise of God to change his epistemological approach because the world wasn't wise enough to come to know him through theirs. You get it? The world, by wisdom, never came to know God. That's not how you're going to figure it out. I don't care how smart you think you are, Sharam. I don't, think, I don't care how intelligent you think you are, Korahor. That's not how you get there. You're never going to think your way or rationalize your way into a knowledge of God. That's not how it is. So God was wise enough to see where wisdom falls short, at least worldly wisdom. So what did he do instead? Next line. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And that is such a great phrase, too. Remember the cross of Christ? Oh, you, you used the cross word. Can you not say that? Oh, no, I'm going to say it. That's for sure. I'm going to push right in front of you over and over and over. And I know you think it's foolishness. I know you think I'm a moron just for bringing up the word. That's okay. I'll embrace that word. In fact, God does. God loves morons. That's all he ever sends out on missions. I was a moron, at least in the world's eyes. I, I was 19 years old. I didn't know what I was doing. He, but God prefers, he thinks it's wiser to trust in foolishness and then flip it around again because it would be foolish to trust in worldly wisdom. So how's the Lord going to teach truth? How's he going to help us come to know divine wisdom? Well, through the foolishness of preaching. And I love that phrase. I'm more of a teacher than a preacher now, but I think it also applies to the foolishness of teaching. And when you really think about it, what is preaching? What is teaching? It's just a bunch of words. We're trying to explain concepts and illustrate ideas and get you to think about things. That's supposed to change the world? I mean, think about all the major societal issues we're going to have to overcome. And what's God's big idea? You guys should go talk about it. You guys should go, I don't know, have, hold a general conference. Yeah, you got some family issues to work through. Uh, family home evening lesson, anyone? I, I have big hopes for my students. 
and and there are major changes they're going to need to make in their lives. And so, what's the best tool I can pull out of my tool belt? A lesson plan. <laughs> that seems foolish. The foolishness of preaching. How's God going to change the world? He's going to send a bunch of 18 and 19 year olds all across the globe to open their mouths and in uneloquent ways, in, in language that they haven't quite mastered yet, especially if they're going foreign speaking. Through the foolishness of preaching, God will reveal the wisdom of the ages. And he'll do it in a way that changes hearts instead of just convincing minds. It's amazing that he does it that way. I think part of the power is that we help, it helps us develop Christ-like attributes along the way. Because if we're going to allow the foolishness of preaching to change us, we must have developed some humility and patience and meekness and openness along the way. And that's exactly what God intends. But let's get back to Paul's letter and see why his audience would consider preaching such a foolish approach. Again, I want something stronger than just mere words. Give me some proof. And that's what they're demanding. So keep reading. For the Jews require a sign. And again, a sign, like what Korahor demanded, like what Sharon demanded, a sign would be sensory proof. Convince my eyes. Convince my ears. Prove to me through the senses that this is true. And if that's the Jewish requirement, what's the Greek? Next line. The Greeks seek after wisdom. But that's no different than what the Jews, the Jews wanted as far as the epistemological model. It's still a matter of proof. Jews want sensory proof. Greeks want intellectual proof. I want it to be so rationally plausible that it becomes rationally provable. I want to be so convinced in my mind that I'm left with no questions. Please don't demand that I exercise any faith. Oh no, please. I need to know with absolute assurance. Perfect knowledge. No doubt and no faith. I don't want either one. Okay? But how's Paul going to approach things instead? What is the Lord commanding him to do in his missionary message? But we preach, and yes, admittedly, it's the foolishness of preaching, but here we go. We preach Christ crucified. There's that cross hint again. Which, admittedly, unto the Jews is a stumbling block. They're tripping up over it because they think, again, no Messiah should be crucified. And if it's a stumbling block to the Jews, what is it unto the Greeks? You guessed it. Unto the Greeks, it's foolishness. Here we are. The moronic missionary is knocking on your door. It's foolishness to those that are preferring worldly wisdom. But unto them which are called, or the JST, unto them who believe, both Jews and Greeks, so whatever your background was, whatever you used to demand, if you'll change if you'll start exercising faith, if you'll heed the Lord's call to humble yourselves and open your hearts to his message, then what is Christ crucified? Oh, it is Christ, the power of God. In fact, it's Christ, the wisdom of God. I love Paul's missionary approach. His epistemological model uh, his pedagogy, whatever you want to call it, the way Paul taught the gospel was meant to rely upon the Spirit of God. It was meant to introduce a crucified Christ. Uh, as jolting as that would be to 
his audience, wherever they were coming from. Christ is the Messiah. He was crucified, but he rose from the, the cross. He rose from the grave. He was no political criminal. Even Pilate knew that. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. He came to save us all. Will you have the humility to entertain the possibility that's true? Will you open your mind and soften your heart to the point that you're willing to ask God if these things are true? If not, oh, I'm not here to prove that it's true because that's just convincing and I want converting truth. It's a different thing. And why go that route? Because in verse 25 and 26, the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. And that would be shock and awe kind of language. Wait, foolishness of God? God's not foolish. Weakness of God? What are you talking about? No, God is omniscient and omnipotent. There's no foolishness. There's no weakness. Well, you're right. And that's why I'm allowing him to do the convincing here. But let's imagine, a little mental experiment here. What if God were foolish? Well, guess what? Even in his, on his most moronic day, he'd be smarter than you. And what if God oh, had, a, had a weak spell? And for a time, he, he just was kind of, oh, didn't have much strength. Well, he still is stronger than you. God at his weakest still outmans man at his strongest. So let's go God's route instead of man's route, shall we? Here's the problem, though. People don't want to do that. They want to go the human route, the natural man or woman. And so Paul says in verse 26, You see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, or even better, JST, not many of those are chosen. Ah, many are called, few are chosen. Oh, God keeps calling upon the wise and the mighty and the noble. They just don't, they just don't come. They don't choose to listen, and so therefore the Lord cannot choose them as his own. As a missionary, I was struck. I remember one particular area. We were searching for people that could make a difference in the church. We needed greater leaders. And I remember there was this gated community in one of my areas, and I just thought, I'm sure there are people on the other side that are successful and driven and committed and are, are church leaders in the making. But we can't even get into their neighborhood because of this gate. And it was gated because they were wealthy on the other side, because they were wise and mighty and noble, as Paul is saying. And that gate became a symbol to me as I realized, I wonder if it's their pride, if it's their prosperity, if it's those other elements that are just as effective as this gate is at keeping out the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's a reason that the church is growing fastest in places like Africa and Latin America, Philippines, places like that, because people tend to be more humble humble enough to still believe that God might know more than they do. Imagine that. Now, verse 27 through 29, this is God's approach. Knowing the weakness of the world, 
Well, fine. I'll even opt for weakness myself. God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things that are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen. Yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are. Or at least people who think they are something. And why does he do it that way? That no flesh should glory in his presence. That's about as good a description of the Lord's preferred <laughs> servants, his preferred personnel, as anything I've seen in Scripture. Imagine if he was, these were the want ads, help wanted, positions need to be filled, missionaries, Relief City presidencies, elders' corn presidencies, youth leaders, parents, disciples of Christ. I need. I need servants to go out and build the kingdom. You're like, oh, okay, that's, that sounds like an impressive work. Help God with his work and his glory. Whew, okay, wh what kind of qualifications are you looking for? How many degree, advanced degrees do I need? Have you ever read a want ad that describes the qualifications and you're like, I, good luck. I don't know if that person exists on the planet. I mean, so many things they have to have mastered. Well, the Lord, eh, he set the bar a little lower, evidently, because who does he... Who's he requesting? The foolish, the weak, the base, the despised, the nothing. Uh, you read that and go, I, I actually qualify for that one. <laughs> I'll send in my resume. Actually, I don't even have anything on my resume. He sounds like he prefers that. It actually goes along perfectly with something the Lord said in our dispensation, section 35 of the Doctrine and Covenants, when he's describing the kinds of missionaries he's seeking in the early days of the Restoration. Sound like a similar list? DNC 3513, wherefore I call upon the weak things of the world, those who are unlearned and despised, to thresh the nations by the power of my spirit. Again, why does the Lord prefer weak and simple, unlearned, despised? Well, on the one hand, it's because that's all he's got <laughs> compared to him. Compared to him, there's no other option. But more importantly, it's because those are the only people that will do God's work without stealing God's glory. Without thinking that they are doing it on their own. Like, oh, I got this because look at how amazing I am. No. They have to do it, the Lord has to do it through them so that people won't glory in themselves. Or as he said in the Doctrine and Covenants verse, so they would thresh the nations by the power of the Spirit instead of by the strength of their own intellect. There is a reason God sends out 18 and 19 year old young men and young women. Because, not despite the fact they don't know much, but precisely because they don't know much. As long as they know that, they'll rely on the power of God because they know there's not any power within themselves. I want to send out people without much flesh on their arms. That way they won't trust in the arm of flesh. When I started leading younger missionaries in the mission field, and when I got home and started teaching at the MTC, and I taught at the MTC longer than I served my mission, and I kept telling the missionaries as they were heading out into the field, hold on as long as you possibly can to your greeny sense of inadequacy, because that weakness will make you strong. It'll convince you that it's the Lord's strength that you have to rely upon. I'll, I'll tell you this, and I said this to missionaries as they were coming home too. Greeny missionaries often do the most good in a mission because they don't know anything, but at least they know they don't know anything. 
the older missionaries still don't know much. Unfortunately, they think they know everything. <laughs> Not always, but the, pride, the prideful, that describes them to a T. You see the problem? No wonder the Lord is going about it this way. So, as he says in verse 30 and 31, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus. So we're not going to be that way. We're going to be the kinds of people Christ wants us to be. Weak and simple, despised and unlearned as we might be, we're still in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, that according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. And that's what Paul was doing, glorying in the Lord. It's all about him. It's not my wisdom, it's his. It's not my righteousness, it's his. It's through his grace that I don't fall behind in any good gift. It's because of his grace that I am given wisdom and utterance. All those things we saw at the beginning of the chapter. And I'm going to utter some things to you about wisdom, whether it comes from God or whether it's coming from mere mortals. That's what chapter 2 is all about. So chapter 2 is now building on what he said in chapter 1. Remember, Paul isn't breaking this up into chapter breaks. He's continuing this discussion. But honestly, chapter 2 is one of my favorite chapters in all of what Paul writes. Because to me, I've never seen a better chapter to put side by side different approaches to come to know truth. These are two epistemological models side by side. It actually hit me as a young missionary myself, because in Puerto Rico, it's, there's a strong Catholic influence there, as Latin American country. Uh, or island. Uh, it's also, though, got a strong Seventh-day Adventist, especially on the West Coast. There's a huge Jehovah's Witness population because the center of all Spanish translation for the Jehovah's Witnesses Church is in Puerto Rico. And so I met a ton of Jehovah's Witnesses, and I was always amazed and impressed by their, their diligence, their determination. I mean, sometimes they put us to shame. They were out there. Well, I couldn't get my whole ward to go tracting, but the Jehovah's Witnesses always seemed to. And we ended up having some amazing conversations with Jehovah's Witnesses members. Uh, and they weren't very open to, the, to our gospel, that's for sure. But we had enough conversations that I realized, oh, I, I'm starting to understand your approach. You're never going to ask me to pray about anything. You're going to try to prove it to me instead. And you are going to proof text Bible verse after Bible verse. Hopefully we can avoid the contention that would make this a Bible bash. But even without the bashing, it's still scriptural proof texting, and you are aiming specifically to my mind to convince me that you have the proper interpretation of every passage. And that's all it's going to be. I actually even remember reading one of their pamphlets that described, again, proof text after proof text, all the chapter and verse. And at the end, it basically said, now you know that this is true. And I thought, wow, that's a far cry from Moroni's promise. What's Moroni say at the end? you got to talk to God about this. And the amazing thing about that model, trusting in the Spirit, is more than knowing about God, you've come to know God along the way. Your pursuit of knowledge also culminated in the acquisition of attributes. You've become something along the way. It's amazing, that approach. Again, it humbles us, it, it stretches our patience, it tries our faith, and thereby builds it. We become something. And so keep an eye out in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I'll even say this. When I was up at the University of Utah, 
and we were experimenting with some different curriculum, I created a class a whole semester long just on faith crisis and how to navigate. And I was amazed at how many of the concepts that we would talk about find some roots in 1 Corinthians. And especially chapter 2, we had a whole lesson on head versus heart. And how do we come to know the things of God? Section 8 of the Doctrine and Covenant says we've got to use both. But sadly in the world, they, they don't care about the heart. They only will aim at the head. And we're going to see that spelled out clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Fantastic chapter. So dive in. Verse 1, And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. And that's shocking. Wait, you didn't come with excellency of speech? No wisdom? I mean, especially in a place like Corinth, actually Greece in general, Roman Empire, those are the rhetorical gifts that famous Greek and Roman orators were known for. I mean, if you didn't have excellency of speech, why would anyone listen to you? If you didn't have worldly wisdom, how on earth could you prove your point and win your argument? And yet Paul is, isn't coming that way? And the irony here is, I mean, if there was one thing we learned about Paul in the book of Romans, he had excellency of speech. He was incredibly eloquent. And wisdom, it's hard to keep up with him. He's so smart. He's the Isaiah of the New Testament, the Neil A. Maxwell of his day. And it's like, how? And yet he didn't come that way. In fact, next line is even more powerful. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh, that foolish word that so offends you. You see how Paul is embracing that over and over again? You, you think that's a moron? Well, consider me moron in chief. In fact, I'm going to determine to know nothing else. And for Paul, that would require determination since he knew so much else. Most of us don't have to determine to know nothing. It comes naturally. It's like, hey, I don't have to pretend to be ignorant. I legitimately am. And I don't know how to answer that question, or I don't know what, what, how to explain that. Now, Paul, I actually wonder, when he was on Mars Hill, and remember he's quoting Greek and Roman poets and so on, some incredible wisdom back in Acts chapter 17. I wonder if he's, again, he's taking a different approach here in Corinth. And maybe it's because he realized, I didn't really do any good. Did it convince people? Did I prove the, my point? Even if I did, are they still only holding on mentally instead of embracing something spiritually? And what's going to happen when the next doubt comes in? Or I'm not around to make another proof text and, and make it all crystal clear. No, I've got to wean them off my wisdom and ground them in the wisdom of God. Well, then let's take my wisdom off the table. So they can't rely upon... It'll end up being a crutch to them. So no, I'm going to determine to know nothing. And that requires a lot of restraint and a lot of humility on his part. Because he could have, he could have wowed them with his philosophizing. He didn't. It actually makes me wonder... If that's why some people were shouting, I'm for Apollos, when other people were saying, I'm for Paul. Now, I do not want to throw Apollos under the bus here, because I don't know exactly what his approach was among these Corinthians. But I do know what we learned about Apollos back in the book of Acts. Remember when Aquila and Priscilla first met him? 
he was incredible and known for two things. Wisdom and utterance, like we saw in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians. He was known for his eloquence, and he was such a rational thinker that, remember, he'd go into these synagogues and prove to people by the scriptures that Jesus really was Christ. That's the impression of Apollos that the book of Acts leaves us. And so it does make you wonder when a man like that comes into a place like Corinth, and they're all cut from the same philosophical cloth, and you picture him going, ah, this is where my rhetorical gifts really can come in handy. And I can utter eloquence, and I can prove my wisdom to show that these are all true things. And again, there's, some, there's room for that, and that's a blessing. Again, I'm so grateful for Elder Maxwell's gifts. But to think about, even when we were discussing that back in the book of Acts, it described people who knew through the Spirit, and then Apollos comes and helps them know f through the Scriptures. And so it's like he met people with a heart conversion, and he helped supply the head conversion that goes along with it. Okay, you're learning by faith. Well, let me help you learn by study. You get the re revelation. Let me provide the reason. And, and together, head and heart, we can prove some contraries here. Okay, let's get into the Goldilocks zone together. But I do worry that if there were Corinthian saints that were more of the intelligentsia, the, academia, the academics, and of course they're like, I'm for Apollos because he's my kind of guy. I mean, he used vocabulary that the people who were for Cephas, Peter never used words like that. The guy's a fisherman. But Apollos, hello. You understand what I'm getting at? So I wonder if Paul is a little worried that Apollos' approach has set people up for an over-reliance upon, upon worldly wisdom or rationalism, pure rationalism alone. You, you with me? So Paul is reining himself in and say, I'm not going to be that way. I'm, it's not like he's going to dummy down the gospel. I'm not saying that. But I'm not going to rely upon worldly wisdom. I'm going to determine to know nothing. I remember post-mission, I should have remembered this better. Uh, there was a time in Tennessee, I was working on my PhD, and the missionaries in my ward knew that and were so grateful because they could bring the guy from the Vanderbilt Divinity School to sick him on their investigators, saying, hey, prove the gospel to these people. Particularly when they happened to be teaching a minister who knew way more about the Bible than they did. Recognizing that, they came to me and said, Brother Halverson, are you busy Thursday night? I'm like, I'm busy every night, but what do you need? And they're like, well, you come, we're teaching this minister, and he's got these questions we don't even understand. Could you come and help him understand? And I'm like, oh, that sounds fun. Sounds now, I'm not, I learned on my mission never to Bible bash. I knew I wasn't going to do that. But non-confrontational discussion about deeper elements of theology and history, bring it on. And so I went with them, and we had a blast. The missionaries started, and they shared a few simple principles, and the minister was like, okay, interesting, but what about this? And then the missionaries would look at me like helplessly, like, oh, please. And I'm like, oh, that's a great question. And based on your, your religious background, I can see why it would be an issue. But think about it this way, or there's some other verses elsewhere in the, in the Bible that talk about this. So, and pretty soon, it's like the missionaries disappeared, and me and my pastor friend were having were just these amazing discussions. The missionaries loved it. They were eating it up. And next week, hey, we're going back to meet the minister, be with the minister. Can you come with us? I'm like, sweet, yeah, I love this guy. And we'd come, and they'd say, okay, well, we're glad to have. Thanks for letting us come back. 
how's your reading in the Book of Mormon going since we last were here? And the minister would say, oh, I haven't had any time for your book. But I was thinking about this and wondered what your thoughts were on, and he'd go on to launch into some other philosophical question. I'm like, ooh, that's a, that's a great topic. And we had these amazing discussions. Again, leaving the missionaries, the young missionaries in the dust. That went on for, I don't know, a month, month and a half. I was having a blast. But the investigator wasn't really investigating. Every time the missionaries asked if he was studying the Book of Mormon, the answer was no. Because I've got some more fun philosophical thing. It's some new thing we can talk about. And I'm not looking for answers. I just love to wrestle with these questions. Finally, one day, the missionary said, Hey, we're going back to the minister. Will you come? I had finally clued in and been reminded of Paul reining himself back and determining to know nothing. I said to the missionaries, I, I, it's not that I can't come, it's that I shouldn't. I need to apologize to you elders for getting in your way with this man. And they were like, what? <laughs> You're the only one who knows the way. You're not in ours. I'm like, oh, I am. Somehow I've given you the impression that it's worldly wisdom that's going to convince this brother. You have to understand that it's only the Spirit of God that will. And he's not, he doesn't seem to be open to it because he won't even experiment upon the Book of Mormon. He won't give it a chance. And the only hope he has is a softened heart. And maybe humility will do that more than intellectualism. So no, I'm, I'm, going, to, I'm going to determine to know nothing here. Good luck, elders. Rely on the arm of God. I know that's the only thing you've got. I actually learned that when I was their age. That's why I'm embarrassed that I'd forgotten it somewhere along the path. It was my last area in the mission field. We were teaching a family. The wife wanted to join the church, but the husband was a lot like that minister. Felt like he knew everything and refused to give the Book of Mormon a chance. But he kept coming with doozy questions to try to trap us. But by that time, I was the end of my mission. I, I'd been around long enough to know those questions and to know their answers. And so they'd ask something. I'm like, ooh, that's a great question. And the Bible says here, and it would be a text that defended our doctrine at the expense of theirs. And I'm like, see, it's, it's really clear. It's like, oh, okay, well, what about this verse? And again, I wouldn't get confrontational, but I was convincing. I had a chapter and verse for every question. Week after week this went, and he still would never have the humility to test the Book of Mormon. And I remember one day he asked a question, and I could sense my companion next to me like tensing up, like, uh-oh, what are we going to do here? And I knew the, the perfect chapter and verse in the Bible to answer his question and help him see the truth of our doctrine, not his. And I said to this good brother, I know the perfect verse to answer your question. I can feel my companion next to me kind of relax. Okay, get, 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 get him, sick him, brother, Elder Halverson. And I said, and I'm not going to share it with you. And again, my companion tenses back up again, like, what? If you got it, g g give it to him. And I said to this investigator who wasn't really investigating, I am sorry that I've been trying to prove all my points with chapter and verse. So far, successfully, I would think, but it hasn't succeeded in helping you humbly approach God and ask for His direction. 
Unfortunately, I've let myself become a dispenser of answers when God called me to Puerto Rico to become a builder of faith. And I haven't built yours at all. I apologize for that. Now, at the time, I didn't know 1 Corinthians 2 well enough to say to this brother, I am determining to know nothing save Jesus Christ and him crucified. But essentially, that's what came out. As I said, I'm not going to give you the answer. Instead, I'm simply going to invite you and encourage you to study the Book of Mormon like I've been doing for the last few weeks. And you know, I can promise you, by the time you're done with that study, not only will you have the answer you're seeking right now, the answer I could give you right now, not only will you have that, but you will have faith because you will have exercised it along the way. That's what we're trying to help you develop. He still refused. So did I do the wrong thing? Should I have proven it with some worldly wisdom? I still say no. And Paul understood that perfectly. That's why he approached things this way. In fact, verse 3 through 5 is one of my favorite places ever to describe why he took this approach. I love this passage. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Which goes along so perfectly with the, the qualifiers, right? You need to be weak, you need to be despised, you need to be foolish and unlearned and base. You gotta be nothing, so I can be your everything. Well, Paul determined to be that too. I came in weakness, in fear, in trembling. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. The Stoics can do that, the Epicureans can do that. Even Apollos can and probably did do that. But not me, I chose not to, I determined not to. Instead of enticing words of man's wisdom, what did I use instead? In demonstration of the spirit and of power. And here's the reason why. That your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. That is real teaching. Oh, it's not the foolishness of preaching. It's preaching in its purity and power. Brigham Young wanted proof. It took him so long to gain a testimony. He investigated for a couple years and nobody could prove it to him. What finally changed? In Brigham's own words, it was a man without eloquence. Didn't seem to know much. Couldn't, didn't have the power of wisdom and utterance. He was no Corinthian. But he was a humble messenger that relied upon the power of God. And the power of God came and changed Brigham Young's heart forever. Do you understand what Paul is doing? I think way too often people come to me saying, well, this guy has a PhD and he studies anti-religious rhetoric. And so he studies all this anti-Mormonism. So of course he can prove the church is true. When I sit down one-on-one -on -one with people, I never try to prove the church is true. Ever. I'll try to help them understand the two sides of the story and where they're coming from and then the parts that, they have, that they've ignored or left behind. I try to contextualize the information that they're wrestling with. But I, I'm not banking on the power of man's wisdom. I'm not trying to use enticing words. I'll be in a, I'd rather be a Paul over an Apollos in these situations. Because otherwise... They will rely upon those, those wise words that end up being foolishness before God 
instead of relying upon the power of God like they should. Quick story. When I was teaching at the MTC and trying to help missionaries learn to rely upon the Lord's power, since that's all the, that's all the hope they had, Alan Ostergar was one of the administrators of the whole MTC. He helped run the place. Amazing man. And he had a meeting of all the teachers and supervisors, and so we were all with him. And he described a recent tour that he had given to President Boyd K. Packer, president of the Quorum of the Twelve at the time. Now, President Packer is a pretty no-nonsense guy, amazing teacher himself, but truly reliant upon the power of God. And as they were going on this tour, Brother Ostergar was so excited to show off all the technological advancements that they were implementing at the MTC. So he's showing Elder Packer, or President Packer around. It's like, oh, in this building, we have this computer lab where there's this, this technology-assisted language learning, is what they called it. And it's this software that missionaries learn how to speak more eloquently, right? Learn the language better. And over here is where we're practicing things. So they learn the, you know, the commitment pattern and how they do the certain things and explaining things in a way that can be more convincing. And here in this building, they're working with, with people that are pretending to be, to be investigators. And it gives them, here's the telecenter where people are, and it just amazing facilities at the MTC. It's even improved since then. But Brother Ostergar said, in the middle of the of the, the tour, as I'm just kind of help, hoping that Elder Packer's ooing and aahing over these amazing technological developments. Very unimpressed, it seemed, President Packer turned to me and said, Brother Ostergar, this is all well and good, but would you mind showing me the building where you teach the missionaries how to teach with the Spirit of God? And Brother Ostergar said, uh, forgive the language, but when he asked me that question, I felt like I had my finger up my nose. <laughs> That's what he told us. I felt like I was just kind of sitting there like, huh? Uh, uh. <laughs> President Packer cut straight to the chase. Make sure the missionaries know to rely upon the power of God. That way, investigators will have to tap into that power. And that's the power that will change them. Okay? We're not trying to convince we're trying to convert, and that requires God's strength. One of my favorite talks, and I'll include a link because it's hard to come by. It was a message that Elder Irene gave just to religious educators back when he was commissioner of education. But I have studied this talk probably more than most any other talk I ever have because it's instruction from an apostle on how to help students in a moment of doubt. That's the subtitle. The title is, And Thus We See, because he's learning some things from the Thus We See statements in the Book of Mormon. But subtitle, Helping a Student in a Moment of Doubt. It's, it's a game changer. And I've studied it repeatedly because I work with so many students in their moments of doubt. Uh, the whole talk is a masterpiece, but let me give you just a paragraph that has to do with what Paul just taught us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And what are we relying upon? Worldly wisdom and rational proof or the power of God? Elder Irene said it this way, Even at its best, the resolution of doubts by reason and appeal to evidence cannot take us far. You see, appeals to reason, that's the Greek way, and appeals to evidence, that's the Jewish way. Okay? In Paul's language, the way he's describing it. Elder Irene is saying, eliminate both. Okay? They can only take you so far. Now, he admits, it is helpful to meet a brilliant mind who defends gospel truths with fact and logic. 
helpful. Okay? There is comfort in finding that such a person has confronted the same questions with which you struggle and has retained his faith. So yeah, it is helpful. It is comforting. But, he said, there is a hazard. And here is his caution. Even the most brilliant and faithful person may defend the truth with argument or fact that later proves false. The best scholarship has at least incompleteness in it, and that's true. But, he says, even flawless argument has a weakness if you come to depend on it. So, first issue is it might have some flaws. But even if it doesn't, here's the real issue. What happens to the next doubt or the next what if no physical evidence or persuasive logic can be produced to dispel it? In other words, what are you, you going to do if you can't convince the Jews with sensory proof or convince the Greeks with philosophical proof, rational proof? What are you going to do next? What are you going to do then? Well, this is what you're going to realize, Elder Irene says. You will find then what I have found. That faithful scholar who reassured you with logic did not base his faith there. It was the other way around. His faith reassured him that someday, when God told him how it was all done, he would see all truth as perfectly logical, transparently reasonable. But in the meantime, he was enjoying discovering what he could with the logic he could muster. You understand what Elder Irene is prioritizing there? Yes, reason and revelation are contraries that need to be proven, but revelation has to take pride of place. That we, in fact, my favorite verse to illustrate this is in one of the epistles of Peter, we'll study in a couple of months, where he talks about giving people a reason for the hope that is in you. Now, that he, Peter nailed it with that, because it's reason that your conversation partner typically is demanding. But at the end of the day, it's hope that lies at the core of your, own, of your own belief. You want reason. Well, fine, I'll give it to you. But at, at the end of the day, it's hope that, that is at its foundation. I've said this before that all too often, conversations that I have with people that are angry and intellectual and are, are leaving the church, they'll feel like conversations between the Tin Man and the Scarecrow in The Wizard of Oz. And they are the self-proclaimed Tin Man. I have no heart, so don't think that your testimony is going to do anything to me. I don't believe in testimony. I don't believe in the Spirit. It's just elevated emotion. That's all it is. So don't aim there. Don't tell me you know it's true. That's fine. I won't. But the unfortunate part of their playing Tin Man is they force me, or they accuse me, more, more accurately. They accuse me of being the Scarecrow. No wonder you're aiming for my heart. That's all you have. You can't have a head-to-head -head conversation because you don't have a brain, do you? And there's this, again, intellectual arrogance condescending at the person with mere faith to believe. So I'll tell them, well, you may think of me as the scarecrow, but I'm definitely not the cowardly lion. So if you want to, if you want to talk, fine, I'm happy to. And if you want to keep it on the level of pure reason and rationalism, well, if, I, guess I'm, I guess I'll have to confine myself to that. I'd prefer to determine to know nothing. Now I have to determine to feel nothing. You're deter you've determined that for us both. Okay, well, then I'll do everything I can to help convince you, but I'll admit at the end of the day, it will still be insufficient. 
God makes sure that's the case. What are we going to be left with if all we have is reason? Immanuel Kant, a philosopher in the Enlightenment, actually even pushed back because the Enlightenment period was swinging so far to the head at the expense of the heart. They were overcorrecting from what they considered an overemphasis on the heart in, in religious superstition, as they called it. So, like, nope, it's, it's all the head. It's all reason. There's no, there's no possibility for revelation. And they overswung it so hard in the Enlightenment that the Romantic period had to try to swing the pendulum back. But on an individual level, a philosopher, Immanuel Kant, wrote a book called The Critique of Pure Reason, where he was concerned that, about that overswing of the pendulum. Does reason alone have its limits? Yes. And so to acknowledge that there are, are some things that are not going to be empirically provable if you've limited yourself to a narrow scientific epistemology. We have to be more open than that if we're going to learn the things of God. You understand what I'm trying to explain here? I know there's a lot, but this, this is one we'd spend hours on in that class on navigating faith crisis. Next verse, though, 6 through 8. Howbeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect. And perfect there doesn't mean sinless or flawless. The Greek word there is teleos. The same one we saw Jesus use when he said, be therefore perfect. And teleos, as in telescope, so far off in the distance. Other translations actually render that word mature. Like when you finally reached, oh, full development, you're full grown You've reached that distant goal off on the horizon. Those kinds of people, well-developed people, oh yeah, we'll speak wisdom to them. It's like, you want wisdom? Well, we got wisdom. It's just not the kind you're demanding. It's not worldly wisdom. It's divine wisdom. And that's the kind we have. To those who are prepared to receive it, humble and meek and open, those that have developed the Christ-like attributes that equip them to understand the mind of Christ, oh, we're going to give it to them. And it will be wisdom like you've never imagined before. Well, wisdom like the world has never imagined. That's what he says next. It's not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world. Because that wisdom, those princes, that comes to naught. Remember, even on their wisest day, they're less than the foolishness of God. So, no, it's not the wisdom of the world. It's not the so-called intellectual princes of the world. But like I said, we speak the wisdom of God. We really do. But we do it in a mystery. Even the hidden wisdom, which God ordained, and that ordained, we could also say foreordained, is the same Greek word. Remember that word we learned last, last week in Romans that talks about the pro-horizon or the pre-horizon? It's, it's way off in the distance. That's the kind of hidden wisdom, godly wisdom, mysteries based in revelation that God has foreordained for us before the world unto our glory, as Paul puts it. Which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Oh, there's a little dig that Paul couldn't resist there. Kind of like what Peter always said, you crucified Christ because you weren't open to his message. Paul is saying that to the worldly wise. You weren't smart enough to recognize the Savior. If you had been, 
you see, again, it's not just the intellectual gifts, it's the spiritual ones that the Lord is trying to help us develop. And so to, to kind of put his wisdom out of reach of mere empiricism, to put it on the top shelf when scientific empiricism and rational epistemology is too short, it can't quite reach that high. And to get to that point, you're going to have to develop some divine attributes on the way to learning divine knowledge. It's amazing how God is doing it here. And if you had developed those things, you would have known Jesus for who he was. I call this a pragmatist epistemology because the proof is in the pudding. This is what Jesus taught back in John chapter 7, that if you, any man will do his will, he will know of the doctrine. This is by their fruits ye shall know them. There's a, an experimental level. It's Alma 32, experiment upon the word. Do something and you'll, you'll become something. And as a result, you'll know something. You get it? Forgive the, the analogy if, it, if it's oh, too Hollywood. But if you're a fan of the Jurassic Park series, and yes, every movie seems to be just to put the last one on steroids and create some new dinosaur. But go back to the very first one. And in, that, in fact, rewind beyond that and go to the book that started the whole franchise. And the first movie does a semi-good job of this, but the book nails it. As they were trying to develop the technology to extract the dinosaur DNA from the mosquitoes embedded in the prehistoric amber, it's an interesting scene. But in the book, it really makes a point of how hard it was to develop that kind of technology, to arrive at that kind of wisdom. And because it was so hard to get there, along the way, they developed all kinds of self-control on what are we going to do with the technology once we've developed it. And that's going to be key to save the world from some kind of crazy dinosaur onslaught. Unfortunately, there were other people who decided to take the shortcut that didn't pay the price to arrive at knowledge having developed the discipline along the way. No, they jumped straight to the knowledge and didn't develop that self-discipline. And no wonder everything went crazy once they started implementing what they knew prematurely. You understand that? Karate is another good example of that, because in karate, by the time you're a black belt, it's taken you so long to get there that you know how to restrain yourself. In other words, it took you so long to learn how to really hurt someone that you also develop the self-discipline to try to avoid hurting the person that you're fighting. There's something about divine knowledge that develops our attributes along the way. And that's by divine design. As Euclid said to the king, there is no royal road to geometry. There's no shortcuts. And there's certainly no shortcut to divine knowledge. It's, oh, it's wisdom, all right. But it's in a mystery. And only the humble will be able to access it. Sorry, different epistemological model than what you're used to here in Corinth. In fact, verse 9 and 10 is one of my favorite places to describe what that looks like. Or <laughs> what it might look like since I can't quite wrap my eyes around it. Verse 9, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man 
the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Those deep things are the mysteries, the wisdom, the hidden things, the truths, that only the righteous can, can acquire. But it's going to come through the Spirit. He reveals those things to you. And it has to be Him revealing it, because you're never going to figure it out on your own. Your eye can't see that well. Your ear can't, can't quite hear it. That's why scientific instruments always fall short. God is infinite and eternal. It, he goes beyond those mortally created, those man-made instruments of measurement. We can't get a tape measure long enough. We can't get a scale that can weigh the realities of the universe. You understand what I'm getting at here? In my own scriptures, by the way, in the margin, next to those, those verses, is one word, Emily. It's my wife's name. I have a whole bunch of Emily verses. And that's one of them because I underestimated the kind of person God had prepared for me. And I figured, yeah, I'd probably get married someday, but I don't know what she'll be like. And when I met Emily, I realized God had prepared someone for me that my eye had never seen and my ear had never heard, and it had never entered my heart. What God had prepared for someone who loved him. I'm grateful for that. And again, back to the original context here. No wonder the Lord can't prove it in other ways because it goes so far beyond what our minds can rationally handle. I can't show you. Your eye can't see it. I can't tell you. Your ears can't handle it. Your hearts can't even imagine it. This goes back to Isaiah 56 with the promises God made to the eunuchs and the strangers that are faithful. Oh, I'll give you something so far beyond the blessing you think is being withheld you. Oh, compensatory blessings beyond your imagination. That's what he's saying here. Only the Spirit can reveal it. He then says in verse 11 through 13, as we're approaching the end of this discussion about epistemologies and how we learn things, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Other translations, the NIV, for example, says, For who knows a person's thoughts except the, their own spirit within them? I don't know what knows what's going on in my mind except myself. Okay? And so I have to be that person. My own spirit will make sense of what's going on in me. He then expands it. Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the spirit of God. Or as the JST puts it, except he has the spirit of God. That's the only way we're going to know divine things. If I want to know personal things, I better be that person. If I want to know divine things, I've got to tap into the divine. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God. That's why we're trying to be not of the world, even though we're here in it. Okay? I'm trying to acquire the spirit of God. That we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, though not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth comparing spiritual things with spiritual. What I love about way, the way Paul is describing it here is there's a sense of at one even in this epistemology. And an atonement in terms of coming to know the truth? Well, if I'm going to know the things in me, I've got to be me. Well, if I'm going to know God, I need to be at one with God. 
Again, that's the development of Christ-like attributes on the way to acquiring Christ-like knowledge. It's amazing how God, what God is trying to help us become beyond just what he wants us to know. So then he says in verse 14 through 16, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. That same word that he keeps using. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Interesting, he's even using a different word there. He's not even going to use the word know. If you went to fast and testimony meeting in Paul's ward, maybe instead of saying, I know these things are true, he would say, I have spiritually discerned that these things are true. Through the power of God, I can bear witness of their reality. It's, they've changed me. They've been spiritually discerned. As he puts it at the end, he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. He's, I, can, I can pass judgment on that, but you can't pass judgment on, on me because you're not willing to step into my approach to knowledge. I'm untouchable. Uh, yes, my, these truths are non-provable through your scientific experiments, but they're non-disprovable. You can't prove them false. I lay, I'm in a ring or in a realm that lays outside the reach of your, your weapons. I can't be judged of you. For who hath known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And that's the ultimate goal of this approach to knowledge. Not just to know the things of God, but to have developed the mind of Christ. Wow, to think as he thinks, to know as he knows, to judge as he judges. Hmm, that's, that's having the discipline to know what to do with the knowledge you have. How else could you trust omnipotence to omniscience until you trust what omniscience will do with that omnipotence? We need the mind of Christ. Okay. There is so much more we could say about this. I've talked about this in other, in other times. I, the, the story in Gulliver's Travels about, uh, about the blind scientists mixing paint color by touch and by smell. It's my favorite illustration of this. It's like, you scientists, scientists, you aren't using the right senses to, to arrive at the, the knowledge you're seeking. You're not using the right instruments to perform your experiment. How on earth are you going to mix paint color if you can't see those colors? Touch and smell are great for other kinds of experiments. Scientific instruments and rational epistemology are wonderful for certain kinds of truths. But for spiritual ones, you have to have the Spirit of God within you. There's no other way. And with that, we're ready for chapter 3. Now, chapter 3, he's going to build on what he just said about how we come to know the truth. But there's going to be now a temporal aspect of when we're coming to know the truth. And this is equally essential to our discussion here. Chapter 3, verse 1 and 2. I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal. So, sorry I couldn't do it the way I wanted to, or the Lord wanted me to. There were times I had to, to lower myself to a more carnal level, because I'm speaking to, to speaking to natural men and women. So, I had to go out the carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Now, you remember last week in, Romo, in Romans 7, when Paul has this extended discussion of the natural man, carnal man? He's building on that here among the Corinthians, 
But here it's, it's almost kind of age-related. You were, you were so young spiritually. You hadn't yet grown up in God. You were still relying on worldly wisdom because you hadn't grown into the wisdom of God. You, were not, you hadn't reached the telos. You weren't perfect, fully developed. You weren't mature. And then this great analogy. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it. Neither yet now are ye able. So I hope you got used to the fare because you're not ready for anything beyond it. Hope you like milk. Your teeth have not yet come in. And this, this concept, we, 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 the way we describe this is milk before meat. And this is the passage where that idea comes from. And that's good pedagogy. That's good teaching. You have to give milk before meat. My grandma was a kindergarten teacher. My mom was an elementary school teacher. My grandpa was a high school teacher. They all had to use different approaches. That's on one side of the family. On the other side of the family, my grandma was a special ed teacher. And my mom had done that as well. And, and that's a very different approach. And meanwhile, my grandpa on that side was a school superintendent. So he had to cover the whole spectrum. And yes, there's going to be teachings, the family business is what we do. Uh, but it's this whole spectrum of what's your age level? What's your grade level? What have you learned already? What, how can we build on it from there? And you better not be teaching calculus to the kids that still haven't mastered the multiplication tables. You understand? Even in my own career, I taught seminary and I taught institute. And, I'm, and I teach youth in a different way than I would teach young adults. High school kids are ready for certain things. College kids are ready for something different. And even when I taught graduate students, that was different than teaching undergrads. That's just, that's how you do things. And so, of course, it's going to be milk before meat. How else would you do things? In fact, when I taught this in seminary years ago, uh, again, teaching teenagers, you use a few more visual aids and object lessons and, and funny stories and, and rely on a bit more humor and so on. And, I mean, the older you are, you have a, a higher boredom threshold. It doesn't mean you enjoy it more, but you, you can handle it. Okay? But teenagers, oh, they'll let you know when they're bored. So when I was teaching milk before meat, I wanted to show them what it looked like. We had just had a baby, and so we had plenty of baby bottles at home. And as a great lover of barbecue myself, I, I had a, a big tub of pulled pork. And I took one of my infant daughter's baby bottles and stuffed it full of pulled pork, <laughs> dripping with barbecue sauce. Screwed on the, the, the top of the bottle and brought it to class. And was showing pictures of my newborn and just, oh, I'm, such, I'm so excited to be a dad. Isn't she cute? And, and I I'm so excited to be able to feed her. Uh, I mean, my wife is nursing her now, but oh, you just wait till it's daddy's turn. And I pulled out this bottle and they're like, what's in there? And I take out the lid and go, smell it. And they're like, it's this strong barbecue sauce you smell. And I put the lid, you know, the top back on. And I'm like, Can, I, can't, I can't wait. I just take this infant in my arms and put the bottle right in there and just let her taste the good stuff. And all these teenagers are so disgusted and horrified, like, bro, how you can't do that. Well, why not? And they taught me the principle of milk before meat. And then we studied it with Paul's help. You understand the point that he's trying to make? You're going to, don't make someone choke on things that they are not prepared for. Now, here's where it gets interesting and a little more personal. 
because in the church, I have heard people complain, especially those that are struggling in their faith or thinking of leaving the church or already have. They complain that all the church ever gives people is milk. And there have been some who, can I tell you a story? I doubt this person is listening, uh, and I won't use his name anyway. But this man had come to a fireside to kind of try to nitpick and point out flaws in, in my argument or whatever. And after the fireside, he said, can I meet you in your office? And so we set up an appointment, and he came in, and he'd left the church, and he was angry. And, and what he was complaining about is the church's so-called lack of transparency. And why didn't it tell us the whole story? And he was mad. He felt blindsided and betrayed. And that's often the case with people that feel like well, they hear all this stuff on the internet and they're being exposed to all these things about church history that they, and they're like, wait a minute, I went to seminary and I served a mission and I, I didn't know any of this stuff. And now I'm hearing it from those who have left the church and are attacking it. Why didn't the church tell me? And that's a legitimate question. It really is. I actually want to try to answer a little of that right now with you. But with this brother, to just say to him, well, okay, I understand where you're coming from. I can see why you felt blindsided by these things. And yes, betrayed. If the church knew about these things, why didn't it tell me when I was in seminary? It's like, well, ask yourself, when would have been the best time for them to tell you? At what age would you have been ready for it? Again, milk before meat is what Paul is teaching here. In fact, I said to him, well, he said this to me first, and it shocked me. He said, the church underestimated me. And he was mad. I could feel some angst and anger and some pride on his part. when he's, The church underestimated me. What do you mean by that? He said, what, the church didn't tell me because they didn't think I could handle it? And I bit my tongue because I didn't want to tell him this. But in my mind, I was thinking, well, what evidence are you giving now that you were able to handle it? Uh, yeah, you're, you're, you don't seem to be handling it very well right now, brother. I didn't say that. But this is what I did say. I understand why you would feel underestimated. But please don't take this the wrong way. I don't mean anything negative by it. I actually wonder, though, if in a way the church overestimated you. Because those kinds of things, the fuller version, the messier version of our history, no, it wasn't in curriculum, but it was in the more academic venues where Latter-day Saint scholars are discussing these issues. I had actually read an article once in, in one of those academic magazines, or journals. I won't say which one it is. Uh, protect the innocent. But it was describing people that are saying, why hasn't the church talked more about race and the priesthood, I think was the example. And the editor wrote this short little article that said, we've talked about it here and here and here and here for the last 40 years. What do you mean we never talk about it? I kind of, kind of got the sense that the editor was like, how come nobody reads my magazine? But it was like, well, because academics tend to read academic material. And what I said to this good brother was, perhaps the church was overestimating you in thinking that if you have intellectual questions about these intellectual issues, are you sufficiently intellectual to go to those intellectual resources? Now, he didn't like that, by the way, despite the fact I was trying to be <laughs> non-confrontational with it. And in his defense, and I've said this to him as well, the church is being much more proactive in providing the messier version of things, the fuller version, the meat version. But don't expect that in the 
Sunday School Manual or in Come Follow Me. That's why in our Come Follow Me, I really try to take it up a lot of notches and let's go through every single verse and try to really wrestle with this. I'm trying to give you meat. I'm trying to pay you the compliment of knowing that you're ready for it. But I also want to honor the church's approach all these years of giving milk before the meat was provided in terms of curriculum. By the way, that's changing. And sometimes it, it's been for, that change has been forced upon us by former Latter-day Saints that are attacking and shoving meat into the face of everyone. I mean, that bottle full of pulled pork that I showed my students, sadly, as I've said this before, people don't correct things, they overcorrect things. And people who have left the church and are now, now attacking it are so angry that the church confined its members to, mil to milk that they have overswung the pendulum, overcorrected things, and are now forcing meat upon everyone, including babes in Christ, as Paul says here, that are ill-equipped to chew, and instead they choke. In a conversation I had face-to-face -face over lunch with an ex-Mormon, anti-Mormon who had attacked me online, I said, my fear is that you, are going, you and those like you are going around cracking eggshells to free the chicks. You feel like they're trapped in there because you felt trapped in there at some point. But what have you done in cracking eggshells? You've killed the chicks because they never develop the wing strength that comes in pushing through the egg, through, out of the shell that would prepare them for life out in the open. I said to, her, to this conversation partner, do not accuse me of reinforcing the eggshell. That's not what I'm trying to do. But neither am I trying to force, I'm not trying to keep people in it longer than they should be. But neither am I trying to force people out of it before they can survive. That's what you're doing. And, and, if I can try to, you understand what I'm trying to get across here? It's, it's all the milk versus meat like we're describing. I even said to this person, I do believe there are ways to communicate through the shell to prepare people to emerge from it in a healthy way, to be able to honor the purpose of the shell, the, the need for milk, and to kind of whisper through the eggshell saying, hey, if there's any more yolk in there, you better eat it all up because it's harder to come by out here. As you start feeling a little claustrophobic in there, that's fine, push your own way out and don't feel abandoned if I'm not cracking the egg for you. There's a divine purpose in, this, in these growing pains. Honestly, this is growing up in God. This is the stages of faith. This is creation, fall atonement, like I've taught repeatedly. And creation is where you eat meat, excuse me, milk. Creation is milk. Fall is meat and atonement is the full menu. Atonement is knowing just what to eat when and just what to feed others and when. The problem is those who confine themselves to creation only give milk and nothing more. And those in meat are, those in fall are forcing meat on the people back, the babes in Christ still in Eden. It's unfair on both, on both sides. Now, again, you could picture somebody saying, then why does the church only give milk? 
And again, I would say, well, careful, they don't. It's just different venues. We have different curriculum for different age groups and so on. And like I said, the church is doing so much more to give more meat. We just hope that we're doing it in a way that people are prepared to chew instead of choke. But this hit me one year when I was asked to help write curriculum for the church. A new institute course was being developed about the, all the tricky parts of church history. And based on my academic background, they're like, well, you study all this stuff. Would you help us write the curriculum for it? So I'd be honored. So I came to Salt Lake, uh, left, left Tennessee, and started working on that. And I remember I'd write a lesson on some controversial topic, turn it in, and my supervisor would say, Jared, this is really good stuff. We just can't use any of it. I'm like, why? He said, it's way over the head. Picture a volunteer teacher somewhere in the developing world teaching a room full of new converts. They're not going to be able to make sense of the intricacies of what you learned in, in grad school. I was like, oh, that's who I'm writing for? And then they said, yeah, it's a worldwide church. And it's one curriculum. I was like, oh, okay, that's the bottleneck then. Our and, and don't get me wrong here. We have prioritized unity. And as we saw at the beginning of 1 Corinthians, unity has to be our priority, right? But it's also half of what has to be prioritized. Unity is one half of the contrary, and diversity is the other half. How do we balance unity and diversity? How do we meet the needs of the community of saints, but also meet the needs of each individual within it? Now, I think we're getting better and better at that, and technology is allowing for that as far as being able to mass produce things. And podcasts and everything else that we're doing is allowing to meet different needs and niches as well. But it hit me at the time, oh, if we're going to prioritize unity to the point that we're going to have a one-size-fits-all curriculum, and again, there's some pros to that. It's amazing you can go to any church around the world and they'll be on the same week of Come Follow Me as you are back in your home ward. It's amazing. We have a great sense of, of welcome and, and familiarity in whatever ward you happen to be worldwide. That's amazing. Okay? But it comes at a cost. And that cost is, if we're going to be unified, and we're all in this thing together, then we're going to have to pace ourselves at the pace of those babes in Christ that are, that are toddlers walking their way toward truth. The analogy I've used before is, if a family determines that priority around the dinner table is our number one goal, so we're only going to cook one meal and we're all going to eat it together. That's fine. But number two, if that family keeps having babies, then the whole family's eating formula. <laughs> the whole family's confining themselves to milk because that's all the, newborn, the latest newborn can handle. And it's only going to be a matter of time until the teenager starts saying, Mom, Dad, I have teeth and would love to use them. You understand? When it comes to curriculum and how we teach the gospel, if we are a unified church, which we are, and if we're a missionary church, which we are and must forever be, then one challenge that will come as a result is we will have to pace ourselves to the level of the newest convert. And that's milk before meat. Now, again, there are other ways to, to obtain that meat, and I am so thankful that the church as a whole is providing both milk and meat. We're teaching seminary students, ninth graders, about the Mountain Meadows Massacre. We, actually, the book Saints, 
blew me away in its amazing combination of milk and meat. When it first came out, I was wondering, because I always read things with the eye of faith in one eye and the eye of skepticism in other, because that, those are the people I study and those are the people I work with. Uh, Lord, I believe, but uh, help their unbelief. <laughs> okay, so how are we going to navigate this? And I remember reading it and getting to parts of church history where I knew it was about to happen. I'm like, okay, are they going to talk about this? Because in the old days, we probably wouldn't have. It's just, nope, just milk, just milk. But because the issue has been forced upon us, and unfortunately, people, again, choking on, milk, on meat that are unprepared for, well, we have to bring it up. And I was so amazed that every time, the books, the Saints series would bring up the issue. Not in such an academic way that the, the narrative flow comes to a crashing halt, but nope, here's the issue. It happened. You want to know more? Here's a, here's a footnote, and here's all kinds of academic material if you want to study it. But here's the issue, and here's contextually how the church navigated it or why it happened. It's almost like there's these chunks of meat floating in the milk <laughs> because the narrative approach of Saints is a milk approach. It's the storytelling, and that's just, it keeps the pages turning. And, and the goal was aim for an audience at a lower reading level. But the content, so again, the approach, the writing style, the narrative style is more milky. But man, there are these pieces of meat floating all the way through it, like, yet we have to address that, and yet we got to talk about that. Are you doing okay with all of this? It's an incredible combination. And I think... We're getting better and better at proving that contrary. The challenge is it still has to be age-specific and person-specific. And so it's gonna, we're going to have to balance effectiveness and efficiency. And sometimes the most effective approach is the least efficient approach. The one-on-one -on -one is the best. But that's hard to do in terms of a global church and its curriculum. You understand? I've probably spent too much time on that already. But I hope it helps you make sense of why things have been done a certain way and the pros and cons of that approach that are largely inescapable, why people complain. But the, the, the legitimacy, the value of milk before meat, we get that in so many other areas of life. But I don't think it's fair that those who attack the church are blaming things on a milk-only approach and then responding with a meat-only approach. They're, they're just cracking eggshells, and that's, that's inhumane. Now, with that in mind, let's keep reading, okay? We'll try to, I'll try to pick up a little more speed to get through chapter 3 and 4, and then we'll take a break. But th verse 3, For ye are yet carnal. That's why you still need the, meat, the, the milk. You're still babes in Christ. You haven't grown up to that, to that maturity. And here's the evidence for, my, for me saying that. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are ye not carnal? That's the evidence Paul is producing to show, yeah, you're not ready for the meat yet. You're still, I don't even worry if you're choking on the milk. Because here you are arguing and fighting over your favorite apostle. Here you are, no, I, I like this approach and I can't handle the other. It's like, come on, can you grow up and learn to learn from anyone? Be open to any servant of the Lord, wherever they happen to be on the spectrum of worldly wisdom or rhetorical eloquence. We have to be more open to that. And so add to your intellectual pride the kinds of divisions that come as a result. 
Actually, those who are attacking the church, that's what they're banking on. Not just make people feel like idiots and morons for believing things. Not just trying to force them into a narrowly confined scientific empirical epistemology. But let's drive wedges into the body of Christ and try to, to divide people. The, the smart from the unintelligent and the initiated from the uninitiated. And we'll try to push everyone away from each other and, and left and right and conservative and liberal and, and drive apart the kingdom of God. Verse 5 through 7, Paul's still trying to push back against that. Remember, he started that in, in chapter 1. Then he talked more about the intellectualism. Now he's going to come back to unity and, and how to, to heal these divides. He keeps trying to that in verse 5 through 7. Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? Who really cares? But ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. We're just ministers. The Lord is the master. We're just signposts. He's the destination. And we're trying, however we can, to get people to come unto him. Now, the next line is, is famous, and I love the way he phrases this. He's going to use several different metaphors or analogies to try to show that I do one thing and Apollos does something else. We all have our different roles to play, but it's all under the grand umbrella of the role that God himself is playing. So here's the first analogy. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. That's so beautiful. Let's use a farming analogy here first. Sowers go forth to sow. Well, Paul is the one first starting the process. That first mission, he spent a year and a half in Corinth. He's built up that branch. I planted. Then Apollos comes along and he waters. He's trying to help you grow too. But I didn't force the growth, nor did he. It's God who gives the increase. So what do we take away from that? So then neither is he that planteth anything. I'm a nobody. Neither he that watereth. Apollos is a nobody but God that giveth the increase. God is everybody. <laughs> He's the one that deserves all the glory here. We're just waiters. We're not the cook. We're certainly not the bread of life. We're just bringing it, offering our all. But please give God the glory. I actually love the fact that God's work and glory takes so long to bring to pass that it outlives any of us. Therefore, none of us really deserve the, 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 the glory. The Puerto Rico San Juan mission existed before I got there, and it still exists long after I left. Wards where I've served. I took somebody's place in a calling, and then somebody took mine. The only person eternal enough to have been there from start to finish is God. He's the one who gives the increase. So verse 8 through 10 now he that planteth and he that watereth are one. We're no different. We're just playing different roles, but we're on the same team trying to accomplish the same work. We're still just ministers under the direction of the master. So if Paul and Apollos can be one, why can't the Paulites and the Apollosites be one as well? As Paul says, every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. Those are the different roles for the same divine purpose. Okay, we're all just doing our own labor, doing whatever God expects us to do out in the vineyard. And we'll, we'll receive our reward, fine. But, but we're, not, we're not the one running the whole show. We don't own the farm. He says, we are laborers together with God. Ye are God's husbandry, his farm, his field, his crops, his herd. 
it's your immortality and eternal life he's trying to bring to pass. Then he pivots a bit and uses a different metaphor. We use the farm. Now let's go. That's for you country folk. Now for the city folk. Ye are God's building. And we're going to see a few more building metaphors in just a moment. But in this analogy, who am I and who is Apollos? Well, let's go there. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder. And that's God. He's the master builder. He's the general contractor. The rest of us are just subcontractors. He gives us an assignment here, an assignment there. He divides and conquers and tells us to get, get to work at different parts of the building. But this wise master builder, what's he told us to do? Well, I have laid the foundation. That's what I was supposed to be doing, kind of ground level, just like planting seeds. Meanwhile, another buildeth thereon. And that would describe someone like Apollos. Maybe he came to do the framing or the plumbing or the electrical. But there's so much work to be done, it's going to outlive us all, and only the master builder should get the ultimate credit. Now, realizing that, what's Paul's advice? Let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon. You better, you better be careful. Especially looking around and realizing how, how serious every other subcontractor has taken their work. If, if people like Paul and Apollos built foundations and started framing first and second stories, and here I am putting up shingles on the roof, I better work as well as I possibly can. This reminds me of the book of Nehemiah we studied last year, where everybody has their place around the wall, but we're building the wall collectively, and the wall will only be as strong as its weakest segment. So yeah, we better work hard under the direction of our master builder. In verse 11, Paul says, For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. This is a metaphor he'll use in other letters, too, to the Ephesians particularly. But to have Jesus as the, fo the foundation, and that's the only foundation. I mean, this is the rock of our Redeemer. This is the wise man building his house upon that rock. But then notice the warning. Now, if any man build upon this foundation, and what what kind of materials might you use? Well, here's a list. Gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble. Did you notice, by the way, that with each step we are moving down in quality? This is a de-evolution of building materials. I mean, the foundation was flawless. It was perfect. It was Christ himself. What are you going to use to build on that? Gold? That's a good option. Or are you going to settle for silver? Well, it's still pretty good. Well, what about precious stones? Just mix those together and throw them into the concrete? Or are you going to use wood? Or maybe hay? What about stubble? This is almost sounding like the, the three little piggies. And by the end, oh, you better be careful about the, the wolf who comes to huff, huff, and blow your house down. In fact, it's not huff, huff, and puff, huff, and puff. But notice what is coming. Next verse, every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Think about that. Time will tell how well you built. And the kinds of materials that you used in your construction. We talked about this last year when they were building Solomon's temple. Will you use cedar and gold or plywood and plaster? Will you use chicken wire and duct tape, or the very best materials you can find.
Don't settle for stubble when you're building the kingdom of God because the fire will make manifest how well or how poorly you served. This is building inspection and it's on its way. Now with that, be careful. Don't judge yourself prematurely. If you're thinking about your children, for example, and you're worried, oh great, the fire has come and it's, and my children's faith has gone up in smoke and they've left the church, which means I must be a pathetic parent. Don't judge yourself prematurely. The story's not yet told. Construction's not yet over. And the most we can do is the best we can do. Just do our very best and leave it in the hands of the wise master builder. We're going to see him hint a little bit more about that in just a moment. But along those lines, he says in verse 14, if any man's work abide, and that's, that's the, how he's going to pass judgment. Will it stand the test of time? Will it stick around? Will it stay? Remember all that talk in John 15 about abiding in the true vine? That's what the Lord is hoping for. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. It's like, well done, thou good and faithful servant. You built well. On the other hand, if any man's work shall be burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, or JST, may be saved, yet so as by fire. And that should be reassuring as well, in a way, that even if things don't turn out the way you'd hoped, oh, there's a loss there, a devastating emotional loss particularly, when it's family members that struggle. But you can still be saved. He, he himself may be saved. You see, there's agency here. Unlike the building that doesn't get to choose how to respond to the subcontractors, your kids definitely have a choice of their own. And their decisions may give you a, leave you with a sense of loss. But that doesn't, that doesn't rob from you your own salvation. God honors both agencies here, okay? And then he'll say something here about, well, this building metaphor. He's going to say it twice in 1 Corinthians, but for different purposes. First one, verse 16 and 17. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? With that in mind, if any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now, if there's Jewish Christians in Paul's audience, this is mind-blowing. Wait, we're the temple of God? No, the most important thing on the planet is the temple of God in Jerusalem. That's the center of the universe. The holy mount itself. And Paul is saying, oh, that's you. In fact, the temple was just means. You're the ends. Has the temple changed you? Think about the kind, like I said, cedar and gold, the kinds of building material that went into Solomon's temple. Well, if you're supposed to outrank Solomon's temple, how are you building yourself? How are you building others? How are you building the kingdom of God? In my old seminary classroom way back in the day, we had our own classroom so we could decorate it. Now I'm just sent to whatever building around campus is empty for that period, but... Back in the day, I could do my own interior decorating. It was fun. And on one wall, it was my temple wall. And I'd gone through and, and bought as many pictures of temples as I could find at church distribution and then cut it out just along the, the, the building itself, no background, and then laminated those and 
put Velcro on the side, on the back, because we had Velcro walls, coolest thing. You can play Spider-Man if you're wrapped up in Velcro yourself. Uh, but this wall was covered in temple pictures. And I remember the day that we, when we were studying 1 Corinthians 3, I went to the side of the room and, said, and asked the students, do you know which temples these are? And I think we started kind of brainstorming, like, oh, that's, that's Nauvoo, or oh, that one's Hong Kong, or that one's San Diego, and went through the whole, as many as they knew. And then I said, okay, fine, you, you, well done. You know a lot of your temples. Which one's the most amazing one in the church? And they're like, huh? Well, yeah, tell, what, do you, what do you think? Which is the most amazing? And this is where their opinions would come out. It was kind of fun to hear, like, this one's really cool. Like, oh, really, why? And they explain it, like, oh, that's cool. about this one? Or what are you? And what do you think? And they talk about some other temple. And like, this is my favorite. Or my parents got married there. Or this, and I, every time I said, that's really cool. Wrong, but really cool insight. Who else? Who, who really knows the most amazing temple? And I'd tell enough people that they were wrong that they're like, huh? Finally, they're like, okay, fine. Salt Lake? Is that? I'm like, nope, still not the, not the most important temple in the church. And they're like, which one is it? I said, look around. Ye are the temple of God. And you're the most important one in the church. We only build these to help them build you. You're the one that matters. And so again, think of Paul trying to break down the walls of division and help them see, do you understand what God is trying to work on? And yeah, I'm a subcontractor and so is Apollos, but we're subs. The general contractor is the wise master builder himself. We've got to come into Christ. Forget these lesser loyalties and focus on him and him alone. That's who we're supposed to become. Paul says in verse 18, let no man deceive himself. And think about deception in the context of the body being a temple that he just started talking about. Think about that. In what ways do we deceive ourselves when it comes to the body? Do we start convincing ourselves that our body is our own and therefore we can do anything we want with it? My body, my choice. Or do we think that, well, the body is amazing. It's, it's a gift from God and it heals itself and therefore I don't really have to take good care of it. Rest, nutrition, exercise, ah, who cares? What are wisdom issues? Ah, are we presuming upon God's grace in terms of the grace he gives the human body? Mm, another form of self-deception. The way Paul says it, if any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, and the worldly wise that are deceiving themselves by rationalizing around God's commandments. Well, what, do you, what, what should they do? Let him become a fool that he may be wise. So be foolish in the world's eyes so you can be wise in God's eyes. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, and now he's going to quote Job, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, another verse, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. So don't deceive yourself. Don't trick yourself into using inferior building materials because you're the temple of God. Seek God's wisdom, not worldly wisdom. The world's wisdom will always fall short. It's craftiness. <laughs> you think you're so crafty. God can see through it all. The world's wisdom is vain in both senses of the term. Vain in terms of self-serving, look at me and how smart I am, but also vain in terms of vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's fleeting. It doesn't stand the test of time. And the temple God is trying to build of you is meant to stand throughout eternity. So, how does he end the chapter? Verse 21 through 23. Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas 
or the world of, or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And ye are Christ's and Christ is God's. So who cares what people think of us? Who cares what we think of others? Who cares what we think of ourselves? We belong to Christ. Christ belongs to God. Those are the relationships and the identities that really matter. Look around and see each other as fellow temples. And why would we think we're better than any other temple out there? With that in mind, turn to chapter 4, and Paul will still be wrestling with this idea of me versus Apollos. And we're fellow laborers. We're not seeking superiority over one another. Can you imagine how shallow that would be if, actually that summer that I was in the church office building during, doing curriculum, I'd always chuckle when I would take the elevators because there were these quotes within, in the elevators kind of stuck on the walls, and it'd be like conference quotes. And I remember thinking to myself, how funny it would be if some general authority speaker got in the elevator and looked at a quote and said, how come they never pick mine? And I thought, how shallow is that? They're not that shallow. They're deep. And here we're going to see some depth on Paul's part as a minister of the Lord. And chapter 4 is a beautiful chapter to help us understand how he sees himself and how we might see God's ministers as well, God's apostles particularly. Verse 1, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ. Again, just ministers, not masters, just subcontractors, not the general contractor. Just planters and waterers, not, those, not, not the son himself that gives the increase. No, we're just ministers. And we're stewards of the mysteries of God. He had talked about mysteries back in chapter 2, right? The hidden wisdom that God makes manifest. Well, it's God doing the manifesting. Who are we? We're just stewards. We're not owners. We don't get to decide what we're going to say. We, we're not, it's not up to us to determine the ratio of milk versus meat. No, we're just the stewards. God's the owner here. As he says in verse 2, Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Because, as I just said, stewardship is not ownership. Paul is servant to a much loftier master. So what's he going to do with all of this? With me, he says, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yea, I judge not mine own self. So I don't care what you say about me or what anybody says about me. I don't even care what I say about me. None of those earthly opinions matter. For I know nothing by myself, he says. Or in the JST, I know nothing against myself. Either way, you see the humility of the King James, like, hey, I don't know anything. Or the honesty of the JST of, hey, I don't think I've done anything wrong. I, can't, I don't know of anything against me. But his conclusion either way, yet am I not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. So when all is said and done, it's God's opinion that matters. And Paul cares more about what God thinks than what anyone else thinks, including himself. That's important. Next, verse 5 and 6, therefore judge nothing before the time. And I love the thought of, especially when you're passing self-judgment, don't do it prematurely. It's like what I said earlier about, oh no, my children have strayed and I must be a pathetic builder then. Oh, calm down. Be patient. Story's not over. 
and don't judge before the time. I would say the same if you're taking too much credit to yourself. <laughs> the story's not over there either, and your kids still might make some poor decisions. So don't worry about what anyone thinks, what you think. Think what God thinks. Don't be premature in your self-judgment, self-assessment. Judge nothing before the time until the Lord come. Again, the second time he's talking about putting this in a second coming context. So until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsels of the heart. And then shall every man have praise of God. And I love that reassurance, especially in the context that we just placed it of how will God judge my feeble efforts? Here he's promising, I'll bring to light the hidden things of darkness. I wonder if he means by that, I'll reveal to you just what you were up against. That it was culture itself that you were trying to battle. It was a tug of war with, with Hollywood and with Corinth and with culture itself. Hidden things of darkness. Cut yourself some slack you well-meaning parents. And the other part, he's also going to reveal the counsels of the heart. What you were hoping for, what you were trying, your most sincere and intent. He'll see what you wanted and hoped for. He'll see what you were up against. He'll show all of that to you. And when all is said and done, every man shall have praise of God. That's reassuring. God will be grateful for our best efforts whatever came as a result. Paul then says in the next verse, And these things, brethren, I have in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes. So all this stuff I've been saying about building and planting and so on, I'm using that to describe what I've been doing and what Apollos has been doing. To remind you, we're, just, we're both just stewards. We're both serving imperfectly. We're both doing the best we know how. I hope you'll accept us both in those efforts and his ultimate hope in all of that that ye might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written that no one of you be puffed up for one against another not only is there no need to play favorites with apostles since they're all doing the best they can there's no need to play favorites among one another there in the corinth first ward no need for pride puffed up which just leads to additional divisions. Got to get past that. Verse 7 and 8 helps them understand how to get there. For who maketh thee to differ from another? Yes, yeah, great question, honestly. You think you're better than somebody else? Who made you that way? Uh, you, you wonder why someone else isn't building where you're building? Well, who called you to that part of the work? Let's, let's focus on God in all of this. It's more about God than about you or about others or that, those kinds of comparisons. Another rhetorical question. What hast thou that thou didst not receive? Mm, you see, these are just gifts, which again means it's more about the giver than the receiver. You don't take credit when God is the one that called you or gave you grace in enabling power. Another one. Now, if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? It's like, why are you acting like you did all the work yourself? When no, it was a gift from God initially. Now ye are full, you think you are. Now ye are rich, you claim to be. Ye have reigned as kings without us. How's that for being puffed up in pride? 
Well, fine. I would to God ye did reign, that we also might reign with you. There's almost this sense of, you think you reign supreme over your own lives? Well, I kind of wish you were kings, because Christ is the king of kings. He's trying to turn you into a, a king, but he'll still rule over us all. Remember in Romans, we're heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if we'll suffer right alongside him. Or do we think we're too good for that? Do we think that suffering is beneath us? I hope not. It's certainly not beneath us apostles. We go through it in intense and self-sacrificing ways. So that's actually what he gets at in the next few verses. Verse 9 and 10. For I think that God hath set forth us, the apostles, last. I mean, you'd think that he's, we're first in line because we're his anointed, his chosen. But nope. He puts us in last place. If you Remember what Jesus said at the Last Supper. Chief of all? Well, you should be servant of all. Yeah, I'm going to put you last. Make sure everyone ahead of you gets there. How's that for going at the pace of the slowest in the wagon train? In fact, the way he puts it is stronger than just last in place. He says, as it were appointed to death. That seems to be where the Lord is pointing us. Remember where the Lord pointed Joseph Smith early on in the Doctrine and Covenants? Trying to reassure his prophets, saying, hey, don't worry, they can't do anything worse to you than they did to me. And Joseph's like, huh? Is that supposed to make me feel good? They killed you. Well, yep, you are appointed to death as well. Paul says, for we are made a spectacle unto the world, and to angels, and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. Yep, everybody calls us morons for what the cross that we're, that we're teaching. But... Ye are wise in Christ. And that's been our greatest focus. If the world considers us foolish, fine. We consider you wise. Look how you've turned out. It's amazing. We are weak, but ye are strong. It was so worth it to hold back rather than rush forward because we could strengthen you, even at our own expense. One more example of that. Ye are honorable, but we are despised. I'm so amazed at the humility and self-sacrifice of apostles who are so amazing, who were at the front of the line in their professional careers, who were willing to get, go to the back of the line to help build us up in the kingdom of God. When it says that they were made a spectacle to the world, can you picture the world just scratching their head? When a world-renowned doctor gives up his practice, hangs up his, his scalpel to unsheathe the sword of the Spirit instead? What are you doing, Dr. Nelson? Oh, you can call me Elder Nelson now. What kind of a spectacle is it when someone whose name keeps getting raised as a possibility for the U.S. Supreme Court says, yeah, you don't call me Justice Oaks anymore. I'm Elder Oaks. Or a tenured professor at Stanford who steps away so he can preside over a junior college in rural Idaho that not even he had heard of? I mean, can you imagine? They're made spectacles. They're willing to be put to the lowest, the, the low man on the totem pole so they can hold up everyone above them. Uh, there's a spectacle for you. It's incredible. 
Verse 11, Paul goes on, Even unto this present hour we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. That's just like Jesus, by the way. Remember, birds have nests and foxes have holes, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. That's, that's what Paul's going through. Just kind of hoping that people will provide for him as he's serving his missions without perscript. He goes on, We labor, working with our own hands. Sounds like King Benjamin. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the off-scouring of all things unto this day. Talk about a low reputation. Filth? Off-scouring? You went from a person of reputation to a nobody. Well, as far as the world is concerned. I'm amazed at apostles, true disciples, we can expand it beyond apostles, but true disciples of Jesus Christ will be like Christ in their ability to take in the evil of the world and somehow metabolize it so they don't give it right back in kind. That they somehow can reward evil with good. That they can turn the other cheek. That they can pray for those who despitefully use them and persecute them. This is so powerful. Paul was reviled everywhere he went, but he blessed people in response. He was persecuted. He took it on the chin and the cheek, which he then turned to the other. He was defamed, but he just entreated in return. We saw that in the, all throughout the book of Acts. He'll still do it here in Corinth. Now, verse 14, he tells his audience, I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. Huge difference there. I'm not trying to establish some kind of shame culture. People say that all the time. Oh, Latter-day Saints, that's just a shame culture. Trying to make people feel horrible about themselves. No. But as a parent, and that's what Paul is, is portraying himself as, you are my beloved sons. And as a result, I've got to warn you. I can't let you just go with the flow because it's flown in the wrong direction. I have to correct the mistakes that you're making. It's what parents do. Again, not to shame. I'm trying to prick your conscience spiritually, not I'll raise some kind of blush socially. And then he goes on, for though ye have 10,000 instructors in Christ, oh, teachers on every street corner, yet have ye not many fathers. And there's a difference there. For in Christ Jesus, I have begotten you through the gospel. Wherefore, I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Now think about the difference he just raised. Instructors? Oh, you got 10,000 of those. Fathers? Yeah, not, not, not too many. And it goes back to this idea of, you're my beloved sons and daughters. And so, yeah, I have to warn you. I remember once seeing my dad discipline one of the grandkids. And I remember thinking to myself, Dad, don't you realize you don't have to do that? You're off the hook now. You're grandpa. You can be the guy that does no wrong because he never calls out his grandkids for doing anything wrong. I mean, I remember my grandma, my mom's mom, chastening me, correcting me, disciplining me once when I was a kid. And it still stings like 40-something years later because grandma never got after me. Now, my mom and dad got after me all the time, and I deserved it. But it didn't hurt quite like, because it was like, well, that's what they're supposed to do. That, they're their parents. You understand the difference between a parent and a grandparent? 
C.S. Lewis made, made a great statement about it. It's like, we don't want a heavenly father. We prefer a heavenly grandfather that only cares that we're all having a good time. And, you know, it's like he pats you on the head and gives you a Werther's original. And it's like, hey, everybody having fun down there in mortality? No, we have a heavenly father that warns us, that disciplines us, that has great expectations. Grandparenthood, man, you get all the fun and none of the responsibility. Parenthood is a different animal. And even as a teacher, I'm one of those 10,000 instructors in Christ. And yeah, I'm teaching, and I'm inviting, but I'm not disciplining. I, I can't call you out the way a parent would. I raise my kids differently than I teach my students. Because there's a different level of responsibility there. And Paul is taking that responsibility very seriously. Verse 17, For this cause have I sent unto you Timotheus, since I couldn't be there myself. I'm sending you Timothy, who is my beloved son. Remember, Timothy had the non-member father? Well, he's got a father in the faith, too. It's Paul. So, Paul, so Timothy is my beloved son and faithful in the Lord. He can be trusted. Who shall bring you into remembrance of my ways, which be in Christ, as I teach everywhere in every church. So Timothy is going to be, oh, my proxy preacher. My, the, the missionary version of me, since I couldn't be there. Please take his words seriously. He takes them seriously. I take my role seriously. And we're trying to do the best we can to help you babes in Christ grow up in God. Become different. I'm sorry if some of these things hurt you. I know I've used some strong language. Actually, brace yourself. It's going to get stronger in one more chapter. <laughs> but it hasn't been to try to shame you. It's to prick your conscience. There's a difference between guilt and shame. Shame is shaming the person. You're bad. Whereas guilt... And that's external. Guilt is internal. And it's this act was bad. I need to change. Guilt to the spirit is what pain is to the body. And pain's a good thing. It doesn't feel good, but it alerts the body. You're hurting yourself. Stop it. Quit causing yourself this kind of damage. And when guilt comes, uh, that's meant to warn us that we're doing something self-destructive as well. But we can change. And that's what Paul is inviting them all to do. That's why he sent Timothy to do the same thing. And he knows what Timothy's going to be up against. He knows what he's up against. The way he says it in the next verse, now some are puffed up as though I would not come to you, but I will come to you shortly, if the Lord will, and will know not the speech of them that are puffed up, but the power. He's still taking advantage of this chance to cry repentance and pop the bubble of pride. Yeah, some of you are puffed up like I'm not going to come. Maybe you're proud thinking, yeah, we don't need Paul to come. We got this. We can take care of it on our own. Or maybe they're proud thinking, who cares if Paul even does come? Well, who's he? I'm on Apollo's side anyway. No, avoid that kind of pride, whatever form it takes. Because I am coming as soon as the Lord lets me. And sure enough, after the second mission where he saw the Corinthians, he comes back there on the third mission as well. And like we'll see in a couple of weeks, a second letter comes their way. Paul gives a lot of focus to, the, to these Corinthian saints. They need the help. Okay? And it's power that he's trying to convey. Not worldly wisdom, like he said back in chapter 2, but the power of God. He's appealing to the better angels of their nature. In fact, he says it in verse 20 and 21, For the kingdom of God is not in word, 
but in power. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod, or in love, and in the spirit of meekness? How, how do you want me to come? You want me to come with worldly wisdom? You want me to prove every point so that you have to acquiesce to my superior logic and reason? Or do you want me to preach humbly, meekly, gently? When he here speaks of the rod versus love and meekness, think about section 121 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And no, we're not supposed to just lord our position over people. Oh, he knows who he is. He's a, he's a minister. He's an apostle. He's a, a subcontractor under the master builder himself. But I have been called to rely upon persuasion and gentleness and meekness and love unfeigned. And that's how Paul is approaching them, gently. Like a father who loves his children, who recognizes them as babes in Christ and will provide milk before meat, and will provide love before harsh chastisement. I'm grateful for Paul's approach. I'm amazed by it. I'm amazed at the way prophets and apostles cry repentance to each of us. And as we're about to turn to some stronger calls to repent, I hope we're prepared to receive them. If we are open to the power of God, and open to the way he reveals his wisdom, then yes, we'll have eyes to see and ears to hear the kinds of changes we need to make and the kinds of blessings the Lord is offering as a result. Now in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, things start to heat up. As we said at the beginning of this week's lesson, location, 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 you're going to deal with division. And we saw Paul push unity you're going to deal with intellectualism. And we saw a long conversation in chapter 1 and chapter 2 about that. But remember also, this is Sin City. And there's going to be some immorality issues you're going to have to overcome. And there's going to be some oh, pride in terms of materialism. And superiority as a result of how much you have versus what somebody else has. And those are, those are challenges we're going to have to overcome as well. That's what he's going to start focusing on in the second half of this week's lesson, in chapter 5 and 6 and 7. In fact, in some ways, it reminds me of what Jacob does in Jacob chapter 2 in the Book of Mormon. In Jacob 2, he decries their pride and their materialism. And then afterwards, he's like, man, if that were it, I'd be thrilled for you. It's like, those are the only things you had to correct. And those are relatively minor sins, so repent and you're good to go. But Jacob lamented Unfortunately, there are grosser crimes that I have to bring up, and it pains me. I wish I didn't have to talk about these things. And these were sins of immorality. That's what Paul is going to have to deal with next. And we see it right off the bat as we start chapter 5. Verse 1 and 2. It is reported, so I don't know for sure, it was in this letter that came from the house of Chloe. She was telling him about divisions. Well, is she mentioning this as well? It is reported commonly. Mm, so now I'm really concerned. There's enough of these reports that I, there's probably something behind them. There's a lot of smoke, so there's got to be some kind of fire. And what are these common reports reporting so commonly? 
brace yourself, that there is fornication among you. And the word for fornication, we, we define that as any kind of sexual intimacy outside of marriage. But it's beyond even that. The Greek word translated fornication here is porneia. Can you hear the root there? It's going to be any kind of sexual sin, any kind of immoral behavior. And it's commonly reported that these kinds of immoral behaviors exist among you. And it gets even worse. And such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles. And those are the Gentiles. They don't even have the, the, the law of God to make them feel guilty for what they're doing. These Gentiles are shocked and horrified by the kinds of rumors they're hearing about you. That these are things that wouldn't even be named among them. They wouldn't dream of succumbing to this kind of fornication. And what is it? That one should have his father's wife. Ooh, yikes. And by father's wife, we don't mean mother. That's even worse. That's incest. No, this is father's wife in terms of your stepmother. Your mother passed away. He's remarried. But now for whatever reason, you are... I don't even want to go there, okay? The Gentiles wouldn't even want to go there. And yet you... Not only is, is somebody going there, but notice the next line. Ye are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he that hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. That is probably the worst part of all. You're puffed up? Now this is a weird kind of pride. Are you proud of the fact that you have this kind of immoral person among you? Again, the fact that it's he that hath done this deed I, thankfully, it seems to be at least confined to a single instigator. Somebody has done this. But the fact you're puffed up. Now, I don't know if this is some kind of weird, misplaced, kind of presuming upon God's grace, like we saw in Romans, that, hey, we're Christians and put it on Jesus' tab, so that guy shouldn't be punished. Or is it some kind of other kind of pride where we're proud of this person being a member of our church at all? Is this someone in such high social standing there in Corinth that like, ah, we can't say anything about his immoral behavior because we, he's one of us and he's bringing us some, some street cred. In some ways, this was the challenge when Emperor Constantine became a Christian. And theologically, he was going to lead the church in some wrong directions, but it's like, ah, he's going to give us some, some political power so we're not going to, I mean, who are we to second guess the emperor? Now, we don't know who the guilty party is, but this person that was guilty of some kind of immorality with his father's wife, his stepmother, you, for whatever puffed up prideful reason, you haven't mourned about this. And you haven't, you haven't disciplined this wayward member. Are you the, are you the grandpa? <laughs> When this person needs a father who's going to come down and explain what you've done wrong and discipline the wayward child. It's interesting because, like I said, if location of Corinth is going to lead to some immorality, let's expand the, the issue. This is the one man who's guilty of whatever, whoever it is. But the bigger issue of immorality at all, Corinth actually has, had by then had become synonymous with those kinds of sins. Again, it's like Vegas, Sin City. I actually had a colleague whose son was called, and when he got his patriarchal blessing as a, as a teenager, he was, in the blessing, it talked about his mission, and he was told, you will be called to serve among a godless people. 
And my colleague was like, whoa, I can't wait till this kid gets his mission call. I want to know who God considers godless. He told me, but I'm not going to say to you. <laughs> okay. Whew. But there's some place on earth that according to this patriarch, by revelation, it's like, prepare yourself. You're going to a rough spot. Well, Paul had gone to that rough spot, namely Corinth, where it, from, in some ways they were a godless people. The word, well, I'll put it this way, a Corinthian woman had become kind of common slang in the Mediterranean for a, a prostitute. What, who's that? Is that that's a prostitute? Oh, is she a Corinthian woman? Wow, synonymous with that sin? I mean, Corinth had a temple to Aphrodite, Venus, as we would call it, the goddess of love. And so here's a whole city that's dedicated to that and can hide its immoralities behind the guise of some kind of religious practice. Oh, we're just worshiping Venus over here. It's Aphrodite's temple, after all. Oh, careful with that. Speaking of slang, to play the Corinthian or to Corinthianize became the lingo for being immoral or playing the part of a prostitute. I mean, when your noun becomes a verb, you know you got it. You're famous for something. If Vegas became a verb, oh, that person was out, he was out Vegasing last night. Like, mm, what does that mean? Well, to Corinthianize, that's the issue. And again, you worry, is that just the social situation they find themselves? Oh, those are the non-members out there. Well, yeah, but if you're in the same city and you're starting to, and those kinds of sins are being normalized all around you, does that seep into your own understanding of things? Sadly, do we get to a point where, well, it's not as bad as what the world does. Well, that's not, that's not saying much. Or, well, what we, everybody's doing it. Oh, well, that's saying a lot. And just because everyone's doing it does not justify you doing it as well. God has called us out of the world. He's asking us to be saints. He's trying to sanctify us. We saw that at the very opening lines of this letter. But now, as he's talking about the sin that has become synonymous with Corinth, immorality, unchastity, we've got to be better than that. You can't be lifted up in pride because that justifies people in their iniquity. No, you should have mourned. And pause, preview to, of coming attractions. When we get to 2 Corinthians, Paul will have a whole discourse on godly sorrow. Because what he's going to say in this chapter and some of the others, it worked. They weren't mourning, but after this letter, they read it and whoa, they started to mourn. Uh, they weren't shamed, but they were pricked and felt guilt finally. Enough to realize what were we thinking? We were justifying ourselves either on some kind of cheap grace or out of deference to this high and mighty ruler who is among us. Or for whatever reason, we didn't realize the significance and severity of our sins. I've had conversations with college kids, institute students and others who, man, I feel for them. In some ways, they don't understand the severity of sexual sin because they're growing up in Corinth. And they're living in a world that is so hypersexualized, where it's so normalized on TV and in movies and in music 
No wonder they don't want to date each other because there's not so, there's no such thing as a dating culture anymore. It's now a hookup culture, and if the date doesn't end in some kind of act of immorality, then it didn't count. You didn't it didn't mean anything. And no wonder good kids in the church don't want to date because I don't want to end it with that. And that's that's what the expectation is. Even worse, what if they are willing to go on dates like that? Because if it's the expectation, and if that's what the world does, then uh, I, may not, I won't be as bad as the world, but how close can I get? I've heard things from students that have singed my eyebrows and curled up my toes. Like, you don't think that... Whoa, are, have we really gotten to a point where the rising generation is past feeling on certain issues about morality and chastity? Do you even understand the law of chastity? Or do you just kind of sign off like, okay, yeah, as long as I don't cross a certain line, then I'm okay, but I can get as close to it as I want. Oh, be very cautious. Be very careful. And chapter 5, and then into chapter 6, Paul is going to try to lay down the law in a much clearer way. I worry that we're at a point where we have to do better at that ourselves. As parents, as church leaders, as teachers, I've actually asked my students at one point, what do you call it when you, when you learn about intimacy and, you know, the, the birds and the bees, they still call it that? What else do they call it? And they're like, oh, you mean the talk? I'm like, ah, yes, the talk. And I've said, the fact that's a singular noun instead of a plural one is a huge problem. To take something as complicated as human intimacy that has so much writing on it for good and for ill, and to reduce it down to one single awkward conversation between two parties, neither one of which wants to be present for it? Can we just get this done? And say, okay, we had the talk, and like, good luck, son or daughter, like, behave yourself. I don't even know what we were talking about. But they're relieved the talk's over. No, we have to normalize the talk so we can have many talks and help people understand the beauty, but also the danger that comes in something as eternally significant as human intimacy. The law of chastity is huge. Missionaries, you've got to do a better job of teaching it to your investigators. Parents, we've got to do a better job of teaching it to our kids. We, ignorance is not bliss in this area. So don't be puffed up and think it's all going to work out. You better mourn over these kinds of things because this is significant sin. Now, Paul's going to pass judgment even from, from a distance. Verse 3 through, I mean, they won't, and they're right there in Corinth. But Paul, he's not shy about this. Verse 3 through 5, I verily, as absent in body, but present in spirit, that's where we get that idea of I'm there, I'll be there in spirit, Paul was, I have judged already as though I were present, concerning him that hath so done this deed. Here's Paul acting as judge in absentia. He's holding court over Zoom or something. Okay, right? It's like, I, I've heard, I've got the letter. I know what's going on. It's been commonly reported. And so allow me, please, to pass judgment. Here it is. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm speaking on his behalf, not just on mine. When ye are gathered together, and my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. So get together. Invoke the spirit. Have the power of God. And here's what you must do with this guilty, non-repentant sinner. Deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. 
Now that sounds stronger than it probably is. And rhetorically, maybe he had to be that strong to shock and awe them into some sense of recognition of what's going on. Again, he had to awaken their godly sorrow. He had to prick the conscience. In some ways, this is, this is Peter and how bold he was in pointing the finger at his Jewish audiences early on in the book of Acts and saying, you crucified Christ. And that worked. They were pricked in their hearts and said, men and brethren, what should we do? And they repented and made covenants to come unto Christ. Paul's hoping for similar responses here. So this is strong language. Deliver him to Satan. Let Satan destroy his flesh. It just might be that his spirit could thereby be saved in the, Lord, in the day of the Lord. Now, don't, don't assume this is capital punishment. Yeah, let's go destroy his flesh. Now, he's leaving that for Satan. But what, so we just pass him over to Satan? What do you mean by that? Well, in modern terms, we're talking about excommunication. The word itself is fascinating because if you're part of the, the, the family of the faithful, then you're in communion with the saints. And excommunication is to, it's the dividing, here's the irony. The Corinthian saints are creating all these dividing lines that shouldn't exist, but then they're erasing dividing lines that should. And you're fighting over which apostle you want to follow, but you're not fighting to maintain the purity of your own community? No, the, the, excommunication is not meant to be some kind, uh, some kind of vengeful thing. It's meant actually to protect both parties. It's meant to protect the faithful by separating out what could end up causing major damage if it, the iniquity is swept under the rug and people are like, like, know what's going on? I mean, if it's commonly reported to Paul from a distance, then everybody in town must know what's going on. And the saints of the Corinth First Ward are like, okay, don't, you know, behind closed doors, they're whispering things. But, and everybody knows the issue, but nobody wants to lift a finger to do anything about it. Because this person's important, and who are we? Well, Paul's calling it out. He's, they've got to be excommunicated. Because if you let them stay, then everyone else at church is given this false sense of that's not that bad what he's done. And, oh, in that case, then, I mean, there's been no discipline in there. I guess I can get away with it. We're all lo always looking for boundaries, right? And that guy really pushed it, and they're still okay, so can I follow suit? No. Part of the purposes of church discipline is to protect the saints and the good name of the church. It's also to save the soul of the sinner. And sometimes they need a full reset. Leaving them outside the, 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 the sanctuary of standards. I mean, they, they left it already. Okay, well, I guess we're going to make official what you had already done to yourself. You excommunicated yourself. You left the safety of God's standards. And the only other master that you could have possibly have is Satan now. And he's after the destruction of your flesh. We're still after the salvation of your spirit. But to go out there and grapple with the reality of this is what it feels like to be on your own. This is what it feels like to really lose the spirit. You want to stay? Or do you want to take salvation and sin more seriously and repent of those sins and come back? We'd love to offer you rebaptism, recommunication after your excommunication. Okay? So keep reading, and notice what Paul says in verse 6 through 8. Your glorying is not good. 
And that goes back to that being puffed up about what's happening here. Don't glory in this. You should, you should feel sick over these sins. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump? Now, Jesus used the idea of leaven in a positive light in the parable of the leaven. That, yeah, leaven leavens the whole lump. And if you can put a little faith into the mix, then everyone can grow in God. That's good. Well, this is the bad version. This is the leaven of sin, and unfortunately, it starts to spread too. This is like mold spreading throughout the dough. This is cancer spreading throughout the body. So there's no other alternative than to cut out the cancerous part. Excommunication, it's, it's our only hope to save the rest. So the way he puts it here, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. And then, probably Paul thinking of his own old Pharisee days, his Jewish background, knowing there's Jewish Christians in his audience. Ah, what are we all thinking when it comes to clearing out the old leaven? Well, duh, this is the feast of unleavened bread that goes along with the Passover. Ah, so along those lines, Paul says, for even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. You remember the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover was spring cleaning in the Jewish world. Let's clear out every last crumb, anything that has yeast, leaven in it, because that, that will lead to, to decay. Any last vestige of sin must be swept out of our souls. All through Christ, our Passover. He's the lamb without blemish. It's his blood on our doorposts. He's the one. It's the death of the firstborn that allows those in bondage to go free. Such powerful imagery around that Passover. Back to the issue at hand, though. Verse 9. I wrote unto you in an epistle. And, ooh, and that should stop us. For, wait, wait, you already wrote something? I thought this was 1 Corinthians. Well, we'll see it again in 2 Corinthians that there may have been more than just two letters. And some scholars have even suggested maybe this first letter was actually compiled later out of smaller letters that had gone before. So is this already a second part? And what we've studied to this point, was this a 1 Corinthians? Hard to, hard to tell. But here he is saying, I've already written you about this. And what did I tell you in that earlier epistle? Not to company with fornicators. Now, you can take this too far, and he cautions them against that in the next line. Yet not altogether with the fornicators of this world, or with the covetous, or extortioners, or with idolaters. For then must ye needs go out of the world. <laughs> what he's saying there, it's like, now, now when I said don't hang around with, with sinners, because it's not just the fornicators, it's everybody else that he named. When I said don't hang out with sinners, I didn't mean like any sinner anywhere, because where are you going to go to get out of their presence? I mean, you're going to leave the planet? <laughs> I mean, it's a natural man, and they're natural all, all over the place. For that, you must needs go out of the world. So it's not all together. I'm just talking about people there at church. Fellow covenant makers, when they become covenant breakers, are you still hanging out? Are you allowing their leaven to leaven your lump? Be, be careful here. So he says, Now I have written unto you not to keep company. If any man that is called a brother, so they're in the faith, if a brother be a fornicator 
or covetous, or an idolater, or a railer, or a drunkard, or an extortioner. Paul did love his lists of sins, right? With such an one, no, not to eat. And eating? Mm, think about that with, with Passover. Think about with feasts of unleavened bread. Think about that with communion meals. And the need for an excommunication. They're breaking covenants. And to allow them to continue to participate in the sacraments is doing a disservice to the Lamb of God whose blood and body we are partaking of together. Remember when Jesus was there in 3 Nephi, avoiding disputations among the people. One of the things that he had to solve, one of the problems he had to fix, was their disputation over church discipline. And you can picture people, some erring on the side of justice and others on the side of mercy, and some saying, oh, but the person matters most, and so the worth of souls. And the other saying, but the sacraments must be kept sacred. And, that's, and the Lord did an incredible job of proving the contraries and trying to strike a, a better balance. Here, the same will be expected of the Corinthian saints. Yes, honor the worth of souls. But whose soul are we talking about? Are we talking about long-term or short-term? I still value the soul of the sinner. That's why we've got to wake him up to his own iniquity. But I also value the souls of the other saints that are being ill-affected by this person who is normalizing sin around everyone else. And as for the other side, we have to guard the sanctity of the sacraments. Because Christ is our Passover. And so, no, do not partake of the sacrament unworthily, or you're drinking damnation to your own soul. For which he says in verse 12 and 13, For what have I to do to judge them also that are without? I'm not worried about them. You can, I'm sure there'll be fornicators at work, and I'm not passing judgment on them. They haven't promised to do otherwise. But at church, that's a different matter. So he says, Do not ye judge them that are within? But them that are without, God judgeth. Let, leave that in his hands. But we have things in our hands we've got to take care of. Therefore, put away from among yourselves that wicked person. And with that, he ends the chapter. I mean, that he, that's the judge. He hit, hits the gavel and says, that's where, that's where we are. And that's where we've got to leave things. This man must be excommunicated. I don't care what position he held in society. He cannot be held in esteem among the saints until he repents of his sins. Again, are you starting to sense why in 2 Corinthians they will have felt some godly sorrow? Like, oh, we really blew that, didn't we? We'd been so, sin had been so normalized that we were succumbing to it ourselves. And that's got to change. He'll do, say more of that in chapter 6. And this is another strong chapter that's going to invoke some of the godly sorrow that the Corinthian saints are missing to this point. Verse 1 Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust, and not before the saints? Come on, do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that ye shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then ye have judgments of things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Now, long passage there, but to understand what he's saying, 
He just talked about passing judgment upon this wicked fornicator, this, un, this unchaste man. Now he's expanding it into judgment in general. And what he's shocked by is, how dare you? That's the beginning. Dare any of you. How dare you go to law against each other out in the world before the unjust? It's like, can't you handle these things yourselves? The problem that he's seen here, again, probably commonly reported among them, is that church members are suing fellow church members. And they're going to a Corinthian court to determine, well, this is like Judge Judy, you know, or, or whatever it is, the, the people's court. We're going to go there, and they're going to solve our problems. And Paul is like, seriously? You can't solve your own problems? First of all, what is that? What are we saying to those on the outside? Oh, these so-called Christians can't even solve their own problems. Some Christians, they turned out to be. This one did this unchristian thing to the other one, and now this one's mad and back, and no wonder there's division and disputation and contention and, and now litigation. Man, these people are, are so happy. Oh, that's, that's a scary place to be. Again, back to location, location, location. I wonder if this, is some, if this is more of an economic thing. If we're so focused on materialism and greed and pride and who's above one another being puffed up, eh, that's often what we sue people over. They cheated me. They defrauded me. And, and they're the guilty one. And I deserve this. And, but among fellow saints, the way he says it over and over here, you're supposed to be the judges of the world. Why do you have to go to the world to let them pass judgment on you? Come on. Or when he says, you're supposed to be judging heavenly things, and you can't even judge things that pertain to this life. Come on. The way he says it at the end there, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Let's take the, the most humble among you. They'll probably be able to work things out. They'll probably be able to pass judgment because they're so humble. How dare you be prideful in their presence? And I had a state president that way in Tennessee who was so humble. I told him once, I said, you're like the black hole of pride. He's like, what do you mean? I said, you're just so humble. Nobody can be prideful around you. They don't have a leg to stand on. You just suck it right out of them. It's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. It's amazing. I don't know how you do it. But take the least esteemed in the church, even the least among the saints, would hopefully be Christian enough to be able to solve Christian or solve problems between Christians. Don't go to some outside court in Corinth. That's making us all look bad. So he then says in verse 5 through 8, I speak to your shame. Now, no, he's not trying to publicly shame them. He's not creating a shame culture. No, he's appealing to their conscience. It's as if he's, we would say it, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. I'm not trying to shame you. You should feel the shame. You, can you not solve interpersonal problems in the Lord's way? No, you got to go do it the legal, some legal battle. He says, is it so that there is not a wise man among you? In other words, is there really nobody who can handle this? No one who can set you two to right in the Lord's way? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. And ooh, that word hurts. We're supposed to be our brother's keepers, not taking our brethren to court. He keeps hitting that word. But brother goeth to law with brother, and that before the unbelievers. Again, what kind of impression will that give them of us? Now, therefore, there is utterly a fault among you, 
because ye go to law one with another. Why do ye not rather take wrong? Why do ye not rather suffer yourselves to be defrauded? Nay, ye do wrong and defraud, and that your brethren. If you're going to go sue a brother or a sister, instead of working things out in the Lord's way, gentleness, meekness, love unfeigned, then honestly, like he says at the end, it would have been better for you to just take it and turn the other cheek. Rather than sue somebody. If you can't work it out and help the other person apply justice so that you receive some mercy, if you can't solve things in-house, and somebody that's humble enough to <laughs> suck the pride out of the two of you, and can we come together on this? There's such a great story in early church history where there were these two farmers fighting over, I can't remember if it was water rights or like land disputes, where the fence goes in the middle, something like that. They both, they were at odds. They were probably close to suing each other. In some Gentile court, oh, God forbid. So they both agreed, let's go to President John Taylor. And whatever he decides, we, we, are, are you, will you agree with what he says? Because I'm sure he's going to side with me. And the other said, oh yeah, because I'm sure he's going to side with me. But they both agreed to allow, let's keep it in-house, and we'll let the prophet pass judgment. Well, they went, and the, the, I love the story, because John Taylor who had an incredible voice. He's the one that sang a poor wayfaring man of grief in Carthage jail, right before the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram. As these two brothers came there in his office and he heard the, some of the story and saw, sensed the anger between them. Well, how's this for solving problems in the Lord's way? He said, brethren, um, I appreciate you coming to see me on this. I recognize that there's a lot of feeling here. Do you mind if, I mean, it's, it probably sounds straight, strange to open court with an opening hymn, but do you mind if I sing a hymn? And they're like, huh, huh, okay. Try, chance to have a private concert with the prophet, be my guest. And he sang a hymn. After which he said, you know, I can never sing only one hymn. They always at least have to have two. Maybe, again, that's why he sang it twice in Carthage. But he's saying a second, he's like, do you mind if I sing a second hymn? And they're like, uh, you outrank us, be my, be my guest. He's saying a second hymn. After which, still no change in their demeanor. And so he said, I, I'm sorry, I'm not really not trying to postpone our court case. But would you allow me to sing another song? I don't know what songs he chose, but the hymns of Zion invite the Spirit. And that third one finally was enough to invite the Spirit into hardened hearts that thereby softened. And by the end of the song, these two men stood up and embraced each other and, treat each, and treated each other like brethren, like Christians, and apologized for taking President Taylor's time and left with the spiritual ability to solve their own problems between them. Can we do better at that? Can we be Christians to one another instead of taking each other to court? Again, I love the way Paul ended that last verse. If you can't, then just take it on the chin. If you both can't be the big per person, then be big enough to be small and just let it go. In verse 9 through 11, he then says, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? And that's how you're behaving lately. Oh no, be not deceived, neither fornicators, there's the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers. Interesting, he put those two together. Remember how often we saw those associated in the Old Testament? Idolatry and adultery, the covenant infidelity, cheating on your spouse or cheating on your God. Either way, same problem. Now he keeps going on with his lists that he was so famous for. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers. The next two are tricky. Nor effeminate. And that doesn't just mean anyone who's more female. The, the contemporary English version translates that as a pervert. And that's pretty broad, but it might be more specific than that. Effeminate might refer to a catamite, which in the ancient world was a young boy groomed for homosexual practices. I, I should have given you an alert here. There's some strong language that Paul is going to use. And unfortunately, among ancient Greek philosophers and, and Roman senators and, and leaders and so on, that was fairly, a fairly common practice. Again, if Corinth becomes synonymous with sin, then this, these are things that are going on. And to groom some young man to engage with an adult man in homosexual behaviors, that might be what he's describing here as an effeminate. Next, he says, nor abusers of themselves with mankind. And that probably is suggesting other forms of homosexual behavior. And again, it's behavior that he's condemning, not temptation. It hasn't yet become sin because it hasn't been acted out. But in this case, it has been. Okay, So beware of that. And then he adds some others more common that we're more familiar with. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners. None of those shall inherit the kingdom of God. And then how's this for, for pointing the finger? And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Hmm, strong ending. But notice the verb tense. All along that long list, I'm sure it pricked a few consciences even just to hear those words again, because that describes what some of you were. But don't worry it no longer describes what you are. It's what you've done, but it's not, it's not what you're doing. It's certainly not who you're becoming. Because who are you becoming? You've been washed and justified and sanctified. You're allowing the Lord to transform you instead of allowing the world to conform you to its wickedness. So you've changed. So can that man guilty of fornication. So can anyone else there in the Corinthian first ward that is struggling with sin. You can change. Please do. He says in verse 12, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now that's confusing because it sounds like Paul is saying, hey, I could get away with any, but that doesn't mean I should. The JST actually corrects that and inserts a not right where it should be. All things are not lawful unto me. So, of course, they're not expedient. And I don't, I'm not justified in committing these kinds of sins. Now, that's one way to, to solve the problem of that verse. But another actually is based in the Greek. Because in other translations, again, basing, basing their, their translation in the Greek original, Paul isn't expressing his own feelings there. Instead, he's quoting them. It's like he's saying, you guys think you can do anything you want. You think everything's lawful. Well, it isn't. It's not even expedient. You people think that, hey, it's lawful for me, and I'm not going to let anybody tell me otherwise. I'm not going to be under anybody else's power. I have my own agency. You can't tell me what to do. Oh, careful, careful. 
The next line is also in their words. They say, meats for the belly and the belly for meats. As if to say, hey, I've got these physical appetites, that's the belly, and these, these physical pleasures out there. There's the meats. They sure seem made for each other, huh? And wouldn't that be true of not just the physical appetite toward food, but what about the physical appetite but toward well, immorality, for example? I mean, the, the appetite and the pleasure go hand in hand. It seems like a match made in heaven. Well, it is in the Lord's way. But outside the bounds he has set, that's a match made in hell. So Paul warns them, God shall destroy both it and them. Since that's not what the body was designed for. The belly was not meant for that meat. You've got to start with other milk. And then you'll be ready for the true meat that God has prepared for you. As Paul puts it bluntly, Now the body is not for fornication, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body and God hath both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his own power. Amazing what he does right at the end there. He's been talking about chastity, immorality, and the body, and the part the body plays in those immoral acts. And then it feels like he swings the pendulum, or not swings the pendulum, but turns the wheel sharply, and he ends by talking about the resurrection? Uh, why'd you do that? Well, think about it. I've been talking about the body. And that's not what the body was designed for. The body was designed for eternity. It will be resurrected. Christ was raised. You will be too. In some ways, I think Paul is saying, one of the best arguments for morality I can give you is the doctrine of the resurrection. Because so many sins of immorality are using the body for thing, is using the body for things it wasn't designed for. And if the body is meant for glory, in fact, think of it this way. We will be resurrected either to a telestial or a terrestrial or a celestial degree of glory based on the degree of law that we keep. And what's amazing about immorality, that is a telestial use of the body. Sense of commission. Whereas eternal increase is only available in the highest degree of the celestial kingdom. So for you to be resurrected to that glory with that kind of body, you will have had to learn to master the body in this life in terms of morality, chastity, procreation. The only place where procreation will be permitted in the eternities is among those who have been resurrected to a celestial glory. They've learned to master the flesh. They are then permitted to return to glorified flesh and bone. Interesting. I think it's also interesting to realize why Satan tries so hard to push immoral sins. Because in some ways it's a weapon that can hit all of his preferred targets. How's this for a list? I was brainstorming. Satan hates the family because it's, the family is central to the Creator's plan. It's the laboratory where we become true Christians. Satan can't stand it. Another thing he can't stand is the body itself because he never got one. Okay, right? You think about Legion and the Gadarene swine. Satan hates our body. We have something he doesn't. He hates agency. Speaking of something that we have. He didn't want us to have it in pre-mortality, right? And the irony now is that's the only thing he can use against us. That's got to frustrate him to no end. He also hates spiritual strength 
over physical appetite. He'd much rather that we just succumb to physical appetite. That's why he was pushing that first temptation in Jesus' face, change the stones to bread. In fact, Jesus could say no when the spirit was willing, despite the fact that the flesh was weak, but the spirit still overcame. Oh, that frustrated the adversary, still does. Satan also hates patience, since he doesn't have any of it. Everything he wanted, everything he demanded in the war in heaven could have been his if he'd followed the Father's plan. He just couldn't wait for it and do it in the right way. And Satan really hates the thought of one of God's spirit children coming to earth with a head start, having been born within the covenant, which means it's just a matter of time that they'll make that covenant themselves. <sighs> hate that. Now think about immorality as a weapon that Satan can use for all of his favorite targets. Immorality will tear the family apart. Immorality is a sin against the body. It's using the body against itself. Immorality is a misuse, an abuse of agency. And since so many sins become addictive and sexual sin it can be included there, Oh, it can be a complete abdication of agency, a, a loss of it. What else does immorality do? It's the ultimate example of the physical appetite overcoming the spirit instead of vice versa. So, of course, he's going to push that our way. Patience? Oh, immorality is the ultimate example of impatience. You could have that in the right way. But no, I want it right now in the wrong way. And allowing people to come to earth within the covenant... No, immorality brings people to the earth ill-prepared. You understand what I'm trying to describe here? Chastity is such a blessing, and immorality is such a curse, a self-inflicted one. No wonder in verse 15, Paul will return to something he'd said back in chapter 3, but intensify the analogy because he's got a stronger point to make here. Verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the members of Christ? In other words, the body parts of Christ. That's amazing. Your bodies are Christ's body parts. We belong to Him. We belong to each other. It's His atonement that runs through us all like blood throughout the body of Christ. So think about that. Your immorality really does affect others. I mean, we try to fool ourselves into thinking it doesn't. Like, oh, no, no, this is just me. It's behind closed doors. It's not hurting anybody. Oh, it is, because we are all members of one another. Our bodies are the members of Christ. So Paul asks the pointed question, shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? Who? God forbid. And yeah, he does forbid it, literally. But here rhetorically, God forbid, he's using strong language here. Why would you, we're supposed to be join each other in the right way because we're members of, we're body parts of the body of Christ. And yet to commit fornication, adultery, any other kind of sexual sin, we're joining ourselves to a prostitute. Or I could put it this way, we are prostituting our true purpose. We're using our body for something it was not designed for. We're playing outside of bounds. And, and to join ourselves in that kind of way, we're prostituting Christ himself because we're supposed to belong to him. 
the thought of cheating on Jesus hopefully will shock us into true fidelity to him. So what else does he say? What? <laughs> it's almost like he's, he's pausing his... He knows that he's shocking Adnan. It's like, what, you're, you're going to go prostitute things? You're going to be a harlot? Well, God forbid. And they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And he's like, what? You think I'm talking too strong? He says, know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two, saith he, shall be one flesh? He's, he's invoking Genesis there. Where two, man and woman, Adam and Eve, are supposed to become one flesh. Well, to do that with an harlot? Compare that to what God is asking of us. He that is joined unto the Lord is one spirit. That's the kind of relationship the Lord is seeking with us. Oneness. That's what the at one is for. These are meant to be the most loyal, the most close, the most intimate relationships imaginable. But those are covenant relationships. It's becoming one with Christ, not one with the world. Certainly not one with an harlot. Do not prostitute your divine purpose. Allow the spirit to conquer the flesh, not vice versa. So the advice he gives in verse 18, in two single words, flee fornication. I can't think of a better verb, by the way. We sometimes talk about fight or flight. Well, Paul is suggesting don't fight the temptation of sexual sin. Flee from it instead. Fight or flight, opt with flight. Don't stand around and try to rationalize and justify, because the longer you talk, oh, the longer the, the adversary can wear down your defenses. Think about Balaam with the talking donkey last year in the book of Numbers. When Balak sends his messengers and says, hey, come with us and go back and curse the people of Israel. And Balaam is like, oh, I can't do that. But maybe I'll join you on the journey back just in case God changes his mind on the way. Oh, that's not fleeing fornication. That's not running away from the possibility of sin. Think about Jesus in that first temptation on the mount. Change the stones to bread. There's physical appetite. Come on, meat for the belly and belly for meat. You're made for this. You're supposed to eat. And the Lord's like, not this way. But he doesn't stand there and, and extend the argument. He leaves. He flees. In fact, where does the second temptation take place? In other words, where did Jesus go to get away from Satan's physical temptation? He went to the temple. Hmm, that should tell us something. He fled to a holy place. Get out of Babylon, run to Zion. And that's what Paul is suggesting. But maybe the poster boy for this would be Joseph of Egypt. Because what did he do when Potiphar's wife came a-calling? In fact, came and grabbed him by the garment. He didn't stand around and argue. He didn't try to talk her out of it. No, he left the garment in her hand and got him out. According to Elder Maxwell, it not only showed good morals, it showed good legs. And maybe that's what we need when these kinds of temptations come calling. Good legs. Just run. Walk out of the movie. Leave the party. End the date. Turn the channel. Delete the app. Change your thought patterns. Flee. Run.
get out and allow the Lord to keep you safe somewhere else within the sanctuary of standards. Please, Paul begs of them, flee fornication. For every sin that a man doeth is without the body. At least most of them are. When we rob, when we kill, those are, they're horrible things, but they're outside us. But he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Think about that. It's bad enough to rob someone else. Why would you steal from yourself? It's bad enough to damage someone else, but to self-inflict some kind of damage? That's what immorality is. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own? For ye are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And that's apostrophe, yes. That's possessive. You belong to him, not to yourself. No, it's not my body, my choice. It's not, I can do whatever I want. No, you've been purchased. And Christ, our Passover, has paid the purchase price. Speaking of what you do with a body, Christ sacrificed his in order to redeem ours. We owe him some allegiance for that. Like I said, back in chapter 3, he used the same idea about your body being a temple. But that, back then it was focused on construction. Here, it's focused on sanctification. And we'll think about every temple we build. And somewhere on the exterior, etched into stone, actually often etched into gold, holiness to the Lord. Is that etched into the fleshy tables of our heart? Are we that focused to be holy and clean and pure and chaste and moral and virtuous and Christ-like? Will we develop sufficient self-control? That is what is the Lord is asking. In fact, it's what the Lord is commanding. Take it all together, and why must we keep our bodies so sacred? And this is chastity, this is word of wisdom, this is eating disorders, this is exercise and nutrition, this is everything having to do with the mortal tabernacle that houses our spirit. Think about the four things he's already told us from chapter 3 and chapter 6. From 3.16, because the spirit dwells in you. From 3.17, because the body is holy. In 6.19, because the body is a gift from God himself. And from 6.20, because you've been bought with a price. So don't cheapen the price that Jesus paid to redeem you. I think it would be wise for each of us to ponder more personally how we're treating our bodies, what we're doing with them and to them. And I imagine that the Holy Ghost will help every one of us find some room for improvement. Now, when it comes to some of the most drastic, drastic improvement required, it's going from, from fornication to faithfulness. It's going from immorality to true morality. And to emphasize this, would you allow me to quote, just share two quotes? One from Elder Holland and one from Elder Lewis. Well, C.S. Lewis, he's as close to an elder as you can make it, okay? The first one from Elder Holland comes from a talk made famous when he was president of BYU. 
It was called Of Souls, Symbols, and Sacraments. And it's a doozy. It's a masterpiece. Perhaps the greatest talk on chastity given in this dispensation, if I can, say, if I can give him that praise. He described chastity as a matter of soul, because your body with your spirit is your soul. So, uh, so it's soul we're talking about. It's not just body to body. It's soul to soul that you're messing with when you're unchaste. Soul symbols this union of husband and wife, of man and woman, is symbolic of the kind of union that is meant to take place between us and God. There is an intimacy and at-one-ment between humanity and divinity through the atonement of Christ. And sacraments, yeah, let's raise it to that level. Intimacy as a sacramental act that must not be sullied. It must be kept sacred. It's powerful talk. He gave a, a version of that talk years later when he was an apostle. It was meant for more than just BYU students. It was meant for the world. I actually remember this one well because he gave it in October of 1998. I didn't even have to look that up because I was married in February of 1999. So this was the last conference before I was married. I, was, I had just gotten engaged. And I was, my wife and I were both very grateful for such a crystal clear clarion call from an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. A Paul there at the end of the 20th century speaking to us as a father, no mere instructor, and not softening things, but being very clear. Can I just share two paragraphs from what he said? Two of my favorite. And in honor of the passing of Sister Holland so recently, and in honor of Elder Holland, who is struggling with his own health currently, this amazing dynamic duo, <laughs> the Jeff and Pat show, as it used to be called when they would speak in tandem at BYU, oh, this amazing couple who love each other and are true to each other, well, based on their example, these words ring so true. Elder Holland said, Such a total, virtually unbreakable union such an unyielding commitment between a man and a woman can only come with the proximity and permanence afforded in a marriage covenant, with a union of all that they possess, their very hearts and minds, all their days and all their dreams. And I was so close to beginning those days and fulfilling those dreams with my own wife. The way Elder Holland described the next is what my wife and I just wanted to be able to participate in. He said, they work together, they cry together, they enjoy Brahms and Beethoven and breakfast together. They sacrifice and save and live together for all the abundance that such a totally intimate life provides such a couple. And the external symbol of that union, the physical manifestation of what is a far deeper spiritual and metaphysical bonding is the physical blending that is part of, indeed a most beautiful and gratifying expression of, that larger, more complete union of eternal purpose and promise. As all couples come to that moment of bonding in mortality, Elder Holland said, it is intended to be just such a complete union. That commandment cannot be fulfilled, and that symbolism of one flesh cannot be preserved if we hastily and guiltily and surreptitiously share intimacy in a darkened corner of a darkened hour. 
then just as hastily and guiltily and surreptitiously retreat to our separate worlds, not to eat or live or cry or laugh together, not to do the laundry and the dishes and the homework, not to manage a budget and to pay the bills and tend the children and plan together for the future. No, we cannot do that until we are truly one, united, bound, linked, tied, welded, sealed, married. Thank you, Elder and Sister Holland, for embodying that kind of commitment through a lifetime here in mortality. No wonder you deserve the promise of, a, of an eternity of that beyond. Honestly, I remember friends back in the old high school football days boasting of their sexual escapades and telling me, Halverson, you don't know what you're missing. And they were right. <laughs> I didn't. But based on the full union Elder Holland is describing here, that goes so far beyond the mere union of body and body, I can honestly think back to those old high school friends and say to them, lamenting, you don't know what you're missing. You settled for a part when the Lord offers us the whole. Honestly, I consider it a tragedy that we have ceded talk of sexuality to a wicked world. A hypersexualized world where Hollywood talks about it all the time. It is not shy about it. It shoves it in our face constantly. But that's in a, in a way that the Spirit can have nothing to do with. And so unfortunately, youth and young adults grow up with the world's view of it, and it starts to feel icky, to use that kind of term. It cannot be confirmed as a beautiful thing. It's wrong. And unfortunately, it ruins it for people even when it becomes right. And that's tragic. We allow our youth and young adults to grow up, grow up missing out on the kinds of celestial conversations we can have with, with covenant parents where, who carefully and sensitively with milk and meat can help ch their children prepare for the beauty of shared marital intimacy. No, we're too shy to talk about it. And the world is not shy about it at all. So they are, our, our youth and young adults only know the wicked form and are disgusted by it and haven't been prepared for the beauty of this within the bounds the Lord has set. Again, thank you, Elder Holland, for your cautions and your confirmations of what to beware of and what beauty to prepare for. The other quote comes from C.S. Lewis, and it's shorter and simpler, but it provides a visual image that I think is incredibly powerful. He says, the monstrosity of sexual intercourse outside marriage. And that's a strong word, monstrosity. What's so monstrous about it is that those who indulge in it are trying to isolate one kind of union, the sexual, from all the other kinds of union which were intended to go along with it and make up the total union. That's what Elder Holland was getting at too. But then how's this for a visual aid? The Christian attitude does not mean that there is anything wrong about sexual pleasure any more than about the pleasure of eating. It means that you must not isolate that pleasure and try to get it by itself. 
any more than you ought to try to get the pleasures of taste without swallowing and digesting. And how do you do that? Well, by chewing things and spitting them out again. Talk about a major mess of pottage that you're selling your soul for. Just to eat it and then spit it out again. Thanks for the visual aid, Elder Lewis. Now, Paul is going to step away from the strong language of sexual immorality that we saw in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. But in chapter 7, he's going to maintain his focus on, on marriage. Let's talk about that. And he's going to expand it. This is the longest chapter we have to study today, but we're going to go through it fairly quickly because what he's describing here is marriage, its pros and cons. And you're like, what, but cons? Well, in certain circumstances. And it's those circumstances that Paul is going to focus on. Take a look at the chapter heading here, and it's going to help us prepare for what we're going to see in this chapter. Because it's easy to lose sight of that and start misunderstanding Paul. But what we're seeing in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 is a message about marriage to those in the ministry. Okay, Keep that in mind. The full-time ministry. And some of what he speaks of in this chapter doesn't apply across the board in all circumstances. It's focused on those in that circumstance. So keep that in mind as we go forward. Chapter 7, verse 1. Now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. So yeah, the letters have been going back and forth, and this is a question that they had. It is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife, and let every woman have her own husband. Now what's confusing about that is it makes it sound like Paul's advice from the very start is to avoid intimacy in general. I mean, that's what he said, right? It is good for a man not to, not to touch a woman. Well, actually, no, that's not what he said. The JST clarifies this, and actually, the original Greek makes this obvious, because in its own way, it's like it's attaching quotation marks and saying, this is not what Paul is saying. This is what they were asking Paul about in their letter. So the JST actually gets us back closer to the original Greek. The way we would read it is, ye wrote unto me, saying, so here's the quotation marks, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. I mean, right? Isn't that what you're saying? We should all be celibate, lifelong. We, we shouldn't touch a woman, and touch is in the, in the intimate way. Well, nevertheless, I say, so now here's Paul responding to their question about permanent celibacy, avoid fornication. So that's first and foremost. You've got to get rid of that. Go back and reread chapter 5 and chapter 6. Okay? Your body's a temple. Keep it that way. So as long as you're avoiding fornication, you, that's, that's the first thing. But beyond that, is marriage a problem? No. As he said here, to avoid fornication, let every man have his own wife. Let every woman have her own husband. Marriage is a great way to avoid fornication. But I'd also want to pause here and caution, is that an automatic solution for it? Is marriage a get-out-of-jail card? When I was in a bishopric as a young newlywed myself, in a married student ward at BYU, surrounded by other fellow newlyweds, our bishop very wisely cautioned us, lust is not lost in marriage. He taught us that repeatedly. And that was an important caution. Because sometimes, if, we've, if, someone, if a couple has struggled with 
the temptation of sexual immorality during their engagement, for example. And then, hey, well, let's just get married. And then it's, it's all on the table. And everything's legal. Well, the act is, but what about the emotion behind it? Perhaps the status of your act has changed, but if the motivation behind it has not, then it could still be sinful, even if it's not technically immoral. You understand? Lust is not lost in marriage. The solution is repentance and reliance upon the Lord. The solution is self-mastery, not just marriage. And now I can give in to that temptation anytime I want. It's, I got free reign here. I can reign over my spouse and use them for self-satisfaction. Ah, careful there. Okay? But what's Paul going to teach us here? How do we navigate intimacy within a marital relationship? This is a powerful chapter to help us, help us wrestle with those questions. Verse 3 through 5, first thing to keep in mind. Let the husband render unto the wife due benevolence. And likewise also the wife unto the husband. Now, do benevolence, <laughs> those King James translators sure were careful oh, not to raise any eyebrows. That's just a euphemism for what we might call marital duties or what some people call conjugal rights. This is fulfilling the act of marriage. This is meeting one another's physical needs within the bonds of matrimony. That's due benevolence. But did you see how Paul phrased it? Who does he start with? Let the husband render unto his wife due benevolence. I'm amazed that Paul puts the woman's needs before the man's needs, which is the opposite of what the world has been doing ever since. In the world's way of seeing things, oh, it's the man's needs that must trump all other things. In fact, do, do, do women have needs along those lines at all? Ah, uh, no, no, not at all. No, he's honoring the fact that the female has a part to play here, and she has feelings and needs and expectations and so on. And he's putting her before the male. Then he quickly responds with the male version as well. It's going to go both directions. It has to. He's going to be very careful to prove the contrary of male and female, husband and wife. But I do love the fact that he puts her first. And this idea of being willing to render unto one another that due benevolence actually exalts intimacy within a marriage. It's saying this is something that is, this is within the bounds the Lord has set. So, Yes, lust is not lost in marriage, and you should have righteous desires, but this desire is a righteous one when it's meant to be benevolent, when it's meant to bless one another. There's something beautiful about this kind of marital love. And then Paul seems to even intensify it in the next verse. He says, The wife hath not power of her own body, but the husband. He's the one that has power over her. But don't stop there or you're in big trouble. And likewise, also the husband hath not power of his own body, but the wife. And that's amazing. It's like both people should honor one another's needs, but also both people have control over the opposite person in the partnership. It's one thing to say you have control over yourself. So yeah, self-control. But to control the other person... Oh, wait a minute. Well, isn't that what you said when you self-sacrificed? We get married at altars. And what do you put on altars? Yourself. 
something you're going to offer up, and I'm laying myself at that altar, giving myself to my spouse. Meanwhile, she's giving herself to me. But what's amazing about that is, wait, if I have control over her, but she has control over me, then we both have veto power over one another. Can you imagine in a car letting the person, we always talk about driver and passenger. What if they were dual drivers in the front seats and you had the gas pedal on one side and the brake on the other? Ooh, and they can like offset each other. Or another way to put it is put the steering wheel on one side and put both pedals on the other. You're not going anywhere until you come to an agreement. And that needs to describe the intimacy within a covenant marriage. Here, I want to be sensitive here. I want to be careful. But according to stereotypes, and those are typically based in some form of reality, men and women tend to be wired differently toward intimacy. And that's why I talk about the difference between the gas pedal and the brake. And if you were to put those on two sides of the car, in a marriage, can you imagine if you got to control the other person's pedal, but they get to control yours. You get to decide whether your spouse moves forward or moves back, but they get to decide the same for you. Hmm, there's going to be a need for communication and compromise and kindness and compassion. There will be times in that compromise where one person says no even though they want to say yes. And times where the other person says yes, even when they want to say no. This is hard. This is one of the, the best examples of proving a contrary in, in a very significant part of married life. It's one that many couples struggle with. It's a cause for divorce among many of them. They can't get on the same page intimately. But the fact that God would require that we get, that, that we become one emotionally and mentally and spiritually, before we can become one physically? That seems fitting. That seems right that there's going to be a level of self-sacrifice on both parts. That we're going to try to honor one another's needs, whether that's a need to be together in that way or a need to stay apart in that way. And as long as one person doesn't get to always trump the other person, whether that's trump them with a yes or trump them with a no. When, when one person gets the rule supreme over the other person's body and the vice versa doesn't take place. And again, this is not a matter of taking turns, not compromising. Okay, now, you got your way last time. I get my way this time. Mm, that's not compromise. That's, I'm only mad half the time, but you're mad the other half the time. So somebody's mad all the time. That's not a good marriage. It's trying to meet one another's needs in a way that will honor each other and where they're coming from. I mean, the way that Paul says it in the next verse, strong language. He says, defraud ye not one the other. And by defraud, other translations say deprive. Same idea. It's this taking away what rightfully belongs to another. But to consider it like fraud, don't defraud each other. Don't deprive each other. Or the JST, don't depart from one another. Depart ye not one from the other, except it be with consent for a time, that ye might give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again, that Satan tempt you not for your incontinency. And that word just means lack of restraint or self-control. 
interesting passage. It's this idea, on the one hand, intimacy must be consensual, but abstinence must be consensual too. Remember, we both have control over the other person's body. And so not defrauding, not depriving, not departing, except it's consent, both of you. And it's for a time, because you have other things that need to be done. In this case, it's fasting and prayer, and I want to focus on that. I'm, I'm fasting from any physical appetite, not just food. Okay. Or maybe it's, I'm trying to recover after childbirth. Or I'm just going through a lot of hard things, and we need to honor that. We need to honor the separation, but we also need to honor the need to return to one another and reunite. This is, these are really important principles to follow. Elder Packer once said something about marriage that I think equally applies to intimacy within marriage. Elder Packer once joked and said, you know, the miracle in marriage is not that two people fall in love. It's that two people love each other the same amount at the same time. That's the miracle. I mean, sometimes one likes the other and the other hasn't quite gotten there. And then the other one person comes around, but then by then the other person's given up hope. No, it's the same amount of love in the same moment. Oh, now you're ready to get married. Thank you, Elder Packer. Taking that principle and applying it to the act of marriage, you need to love each other the same amount at the same time. Or at least close enough that one is willing to make the compromise, whether it's yes or no, whether it's intimacy or abstinence, consensual either way. Okay. Then, verse 6 through 9, But I speak this by permission and not of commandment. Other translations say this is a concession, not a commandment. I'm allowing for that kind of intimacy. But as far as what I would prefer... Next line, I would that all men were even as I myself. And what he means by I myself, well, what is Paul at that time? He is celibate. And that's what he would prefer for everyone. But, he admits, every man hath his proper gift of God, one after this manner, another after that. I say, therefore, to the unmarried and widows, it is good for them if they abide even as I. But if they cannot contain, or JST, if they cannot abide, then fine, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. Ooh, strong language. It's pretty famous. Or the JST, which softens it. It is better to marry than that any should commit sin. So that goes back to what Paul had said earlier. Flee fornication. Base level, no matter what you do, marriage or not marriage, you've got to overcome lust. You've got to avoid immorality. Okay? We at least on the basis of the law of chastity? Good. Now we have a question about marriage itself or celibacy, which is preferable? And as far as Paul is concerned here, well, for me, I'd say stay celibate. Now, this is where it gets tricky because Catholicism, for example, that prioritizes celibacy, a celibate priesthood, uh, the orders uh, you know, of nuns and monks and priests and so on, no marriage, no intimacy at all. And that's the higher sacrament in Catholicism. They've allowed marriage as a secondary sacrament. You're kind of a second-class citizen, so to speak, but at least it's better to marry than to burn. Whether it's burn with lust or burn uh, in hell if you succumb to your lust. That's kind of the sense that, that they give it. We would push back a little against that. Protestantism would as well, so they don't believe in a celibate priesthood. But the idea here would, would, would be, is Paul, has Paul never been married? And therefore is saying you shouldn't get married either? At least that's my preference. I mean, if you can't hack it, then fine, get married. It's not a sin. It would be sin to do what you're going to do outside of marriage. So do it inside of marriage and it'll be okay. But those of us that were made of sterner stuff, 
we can handle a lifelong celibate unmarried existence. Well, be careful because it's actually more likely that Paul had been married and was simply widowed by now. If we see Paul as a widower, then this puts things in a different light that if you're in the same circumstance and you're a widower or a widow as well, then I'm staying single. I suggest the same for you. Now, I'm not requiring it of you. I'm just, this is what I would do. And after all, that's, everybody has their own proper gift. And maybe your gift is relationships and maybe my gift is, is self-control and I don't need those kinds of things. I mean, you think about our own Quorum of the Twelve. When Elder Perry's wife passed away years and years, right as he was beginning his ministry as an apostle, his initial thought was, I'm going to be the most effective apostle in history because I never have to come home from the office. There's no one to come home to. My wife has passed. I'm grateful she lived long enough to see what she'd made of me through our, our marriage together. But not having a companion anymore, I will marry myself to my ministry and give it all I got. And yet Elder Perry discovered in the ensuing years, it was the least productive time of his entire life. And he realized that in his situation, having a companion equally yoked, he was able to move forward faster and stronger than he could possibly do on his own. And yet Elder Scott, for example, when, she, when her Sister Scott passed away, he never remarried. And he even described some things in conference about this is, we had talked about this even as she was nearing the end. And, oh, she's still present with me in spiritual ways. So it's not a one-size-fits-all here. You have to keep that in mind. And some choose to remain single after a divorce or after your spouse passes away. Others get remarried. This is not a one-size-fits-all, and Paul admits that. He knows that. There's different gifts and so on. But the suggestion he gives, if you're a widow or widower, stay that way. You can work so hard. You can give God your all. Like I said, you can marry yourself to the ministry. And that's what Paul has done. Now, why do we say that Paul was most likely married? It doesn't, it's not spelled out in Scripture. Well, if he was a strict Pharisee, and Pharisees are as strict as they come with the law, well, guess what the very first commandment in the law was? Multiply and replenish the earth. Get married, Adam and Eve. Become one flesh. And the thought of Paul becoming such a Pharisee's Pharisee, working closely with the Sanhedrin to the point of being coat holder during the martyrdom of Stephen, the thought of him being single through all of that is kind of hard to, hard to even entertain that possibility. Now, he must have been married. But there's no talk of his wife now, and he's always off on missions and never even has a place to stay. He's like staying in the homes of other couples. Well, most likely he's a widower. But as far as he is concerned... It's allowed him, he's got no strings attached. The only strings that are attached to him are attached to the Lord and his service toward the Lord. Okay, married to the ministry, like I said. Now with that in mind, keep reading. And in verse 10 and 11, Unto the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord. So this is not just me giving you my best advice. This is God giving you his law. And here it is. Let not the wife depart from her husband. This is like what we saw back in the Gospels. Jesus had strong words against divorce. Now, that doesn't mean there's no exceptions to that rule. Next line. But and if she depart. 
So divorce ought to be a but and if situation, a lamentable exception that the person did their best to avoid, but it needs to be an option when it's necessary. So but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, stay that way, or be reconciled to her husband and let not the husband put away his wife. What's interesting there is this sense of, can you try to reconcile yourself? Can you try or, or stay unmarried? Now again, are we thinking, uh-oh, now we're back to what the, the difficulty we saw in the Gospels. If you're divorced, you should never remarry because now you're committing adultery and so is your ex-spouse. We, we covered that back in the Gospels. Don't take it to that extreme. And same with this, because Paul is speaking to a specific situation, namely full-time missionary service. If you have, are in a but-and-if situation and you are divorced and you're going to go out on full-time missionary service, then don't get remarried, and again, this is, my, this is my best advice for you, don't get remarried because now you're creating, you've got new responsibilities, and the responsibility on a mission is to the Lord. So either try to reconcile yourself to your spouse, or just stay in the unmarried state, again, in this circumstance. Now, he's also specific in the next verse, 12 through 14, but to the rest speak I, not the Lord. So this is not apostolic exhortation. This is not thus saith the Lord. This is me giving you my best brotherly advice. If any brother, here's a church member, hath a wife that believeth not, so she's not a church member, and she be pleased to dwell with him, great, let him not put her away. And then flip around the genders. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and he be pleased to dwell with her, Great again, let her not leave him. And then his takeaway principle, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. Now, I don't know of better advice to mixed faith marriages than these verses here in 1 Corinthians 7. Centering on verse 14, that lets you know there's still a chance for mutual sanctification. As long as one of you holds on firmly to the iron rod with one hand and then holds on lovingly to your unbelieving spouse with the other hand, then oh, it's almost like sanctification by proxy. The, the living water can flow through you into them. If nothing else, they're at least not that far removed from the path that leads to the tree of life. Because you're connecting both. You don't have to unplug from either. I certainly wouldn't let go of the iron rod so you can both drift away toward the great and spacious building. But neither should you automatically let go of your unbelieving spouse. Because you don't know what will come in the future. Don't judge things before the time. Now, this is a fascinating passage, and it's becoming more and more applicable in our day as in far too many couples, someone has struggled in their faith and left the church, and now you find yourself in a mixed-faith marriage when you didn't start with one. And these ones are tough. The first thing we need to know here is this sense of sanctification. I can still be a blessing to my spouse, even though they left the church. Now, part of the challenge here is, can you stay together? 
The way Paul phrases it here, here, if he be pleased to dwell with her, or if she be pleased to dwell with him. I mean, think about when you got married. I hope that that spiritual compatibility was part of what drew you to each other. But I also hope that wasn't the only thing. I mean, if we have dates, if we grow in wisdom and stature with favor in God and favor with man, I hope that some of your dates were in favor with God, but not all of them. I hope you had dates and courted each other in wisdom and stature and favor with man as well. Okay? And if you no longer see eye to eye in the spiritual things, or maybe even back up, in the religious things, is there anything spiritual you can still agree on? Can you still have that as part of your relationship? If not, are there elements of truth you can still agree on? And again, are there other elements of the physical and the mental and the social that you can still be one on? Great, then stay together. Just because someone leaves the church doesn't automatically mean you've got to divorce them. Now, the tricky part comes when, it, when that separation comes with such anger or bitterness that the church becomes such a dividing point that it's tearing you apart. This often happens when someone is so angry about the church that the thought of you continuing in it tears me up. I'm really grateful that my mother-in-law has been so open about her life journey. She allows me to be open with it as well. Years ago, she was struggling with a lot of things about belief and struggling in her relationship with God and finally said to her husband, I'm leaving the church. I'm having my name removed from the records. And my father-in-law's first question was, are you also planning to leave me? And thankfully, her answer was no. And thankfully... He wanted to hold on to her just like she wanted to hold on to him. They had many things in common beyond the religious side of things. And that's a good thing because eventually things changed for her. Now that's not always a guarantee, at least not in this life. But if you are pleased to dwell with, with one another, please, by all means, stay together. Especially if children are in the picture. Divorce is hardest on them anyway. But what I love about the way the Lord puts it here, speaking of children, if it weren't this way that one can help sanctify the other, then where does that leave your kids? Are your children then unclean? No, I, will, I consider them holy. Which to me is beautiful. It's almost like the, there's a tie between the parents. One believes and one doesn't. Well, where does that put the kids? Well, in a tough situation. But as far as God is concerned, I think I'll round up. I think I'll, opt, I'll, I'll side with the believer. Well, go figure. And rather than, calling, rather than condemning this child for their difficult situation, I'm going to sanctify this child for doing their very best in a difficult circumstance. Your children can be holy. In some ways, focus on that in your relationship. And I would hope, as you're raising the children together, that the unbelieving spouse is okay with the believing spouse I mean, this is going to be, come down to who feels stronger about things. And if the believer feels strongly about baptism and the unbeliever is okay with that, I'll support you in your faith. There's some good things about the church and it provided me with a good background. And so, yeah, it's fine for the kids. Just don't demand me to be a part of it. I'll come when they're baptized by grandpa. I'll come when they speak in church, whatever. I just, it's not for me. On the other hand, if the unbelieving spouse is like, oh, they're not getting baptized over my dead body, oh, then that might, can we really dwell together? 
if we both feel passionately about different things for the children. This is hard. It was actually about the children that Joseph Smith raised this same question to the Lord in section 74 of the Doctrine and Covenants. And I talked about this in length, what, three years ago when we did, or two years ago when we did that book. But section 74, Joseph asks a question about 1 Corinthians 7.14. It was not about interfaith marriage. It was about child baptism. Because what's interesting is in, in the Catholic world, 1 Corinthians 7.14 is a verse that they use to justify infant baptism. And you're like, how? how? Well, what they see here is like, wait a minute. You've got a, a tie in the parents. Uh, one of them holds on. The other one doesn't. But as long as one does, then the children can be holy. Otherwise, those children are unclean. So wait a minute. If there's no parent, at least not one believing parent, drawing that child to the church, then where does that leave the child? In an unclean condition. Ah, see, original sin, I told you, that child must be unclean without baptism. So we better baptize, baptize them as quickly as we can. If they're damned without it, if they're unclean outside the church, then yeah, baptize them right away. Well, again, Protestants are, do we do that? I don't know. Latter-day Saints, especially, we're wondering. And so Joseph asks the Lord the question. And by this, the end of that section, it's a short one, the Lord makes it crystal clear they don't have to be baptized in their infancy. They're alive through the atonement of Christ. Go back and reread Moroni chapter 8 in the Book of Mormon. He's got some strong language. But what I do love about section 74 is there's a couple of verses along the way that don't just confirm that children are clean, but also clarifies this concept of interfaith marriage and how to navigate that. Let me show you a few. Section 74, verse 3, for example, talks about great contention among the people in Corinth over this issue. It had to do with circumcision, because if you have an unbelieving Jewish parent that's demanding their sons be circumcised, well, what does that mean for the believing parent that's like, no, that's been fulfilled in Christ. We don't have to do that. And then in verse 4 and 6 of section 74, it talks about traditions, the traditions of the fathers. And do those have to be kept or have they been fulfilled? And when it comes to circumcision, no, they've been fulfilled. What I love about that as far as making them applicable in our circumstance, if we find ourselves in an interfaith, a mixed faith marriage, think about, again, can we get along? Do it, does it please each, uh, ourselves to dwell with each other? Good thing to think about. What does it mean for the children? That's important to think about. No matter what, can we avoid great contention? That's going to be a key no matter what we do. We have to figure out how to agree to disagree without being disagreeable for our sake as well as the children's sake. So that's one issue. And then the other is this tradition idea. That would be a helpful conversation, an ongoing conversation between the two parties. How much of our doctrinal differences aren't doctrine at all? It's just culture. How much of it is just the traditions of the fathers? And maybe it was that part of the church that I objected to and yet that was just church culture anyway. And we don't have to live that way. We can raise our children together with doctrines more than traditions. And are you okay with that? There's a lot more we could say to this. And maybe it's worth going back and rewatching that part of the video on section 74. But if you find yourself in that situation, take some time to ponder what the Lord is teaching here, what Paul is giving us. But then let's go back and see the larger issue of what do we do about marriage and ministries and so on. 
verse 15 through 17. Oh yeah, first, he's got a couple more things to say to the, to the mixed faith marriages. Forgot about that. Verse 15, if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. That's important to know too. If you just can't hold on to both the iron rod and the, your partner, because the partner keeps wiggling away from it, wants to be away from the path as far as they possibly can get, wants to pull everyone toward the great and spacious building, then you're not going to be punished or held responsible for a dissolved marriage that you were trying your hardest to keep together. If you can't make it work and the other person's determined to let those religious differences destroy the marriage, then you have to let them go. You're responsible for your agency, not theirs. The way Paul says it, a brother or a sister is not under bondage in such cases. For God hath called us to peace. And sadly, sometimes trying to keep the marriage together makes it impossible to keep the peace. You end up getting angrier and angrier at each other as you're living under the same roof instead of letting things go. That's what God wants for both parties is peace. Contentions of the devil. He's made that crystal clear. So you're not under bondage. Paul goes on, For what knowest thou, O wife, whether thou shalt save thy husband? Or how knowest thou, O man, whether thou shalt save thy wife? That's an amazing statement. Who knows? I mean, people can change, right? So if you're allowed to divorce, but you decide not to, and we're going to try to work things out, but I, at all costs, I'm going to avoid contention. I'm going, I've been called to peace, and I'll take the kids to church, and I'll let my spouse stay home. And I'm not going to bring it up every time, and I'm not going to hound them over their lost spirituality. I'm not going to try to guilt or shame them back into the gospel. That's not going to work anyway. So what should I do instead? Well, I'm called to peace, and who knows? Maybe I will sanctify my spouse. Maybe they will turn things around. If you can stay together and avoid contention and let patience have her perfect work, be the father of the prodigal son, be the spouse of the prodigal spouse, but stay firm and be loving and patient. Let them come to themselves. They'll know how to come home. In fact, they'll still be there with you in it. We hope. That's exactly what happened with my mother-in-law. Once she hit rock bottom and came to know the rock again, she's fully active. She's our stake, in our stake Relief Society presidency. She's amazing. Spiritual rock star. I love her. It's amazing to see how it came full circle. And my father-in-law is so grateful. He just kept holding on to both. Okay. With that in mind, verse 18 through 20. Now let's finally get back to this idea of marriage and missions and so on. Is any man called being circumcised? No, wait, wait, where's this coming from? Well, I was just talking about believers and unbelievers and people have been fighting over circumcision. Let me talk about that for just a second. If any man is called, on a mission that is, to full-time service that is, if they're called being circumcised, great, let him not become uncircumcised. And some of you are wondering, wait, is that even possible? Actually, yes. Remember we talked about that in our very first New Testament lesson? That because of the Hellenized culture and everybody wants to fit in into Greek culture, that there were sadly some Jewish boys that felt so ashamed of their circumcision. There was a crude, primitive surgery you could have that made it look like you were actually uncircumcised. It kind of reversed the circumcision. And Paul's saying, you don't have to do that to try to, to, try to look uncircumcised. Okay, Please don't do it. 
And then the flip side, is any called in uncircumcision? Well, that's great too. Let him not be circumcised. After all, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But the keeping of the commandments of God, that's what matters now. So, let every man abide in the same calling wherein he was called. Now, you're again thinking, what does this have to do with marriages and missions? Well, I'll, we'll get there. He's just going to use, this is example number one. He's then going to give example number two. And example number three is what he's been aiming at the whole time. This first one is, be okay with what you are. If you're uncircumcised, stay that way. If you're circumcised, stay that, stay that way. You don't have to change the external. As long as you're keeping the commandments, go out and serve however you've been, in whatever state you started. Okay? I'm okay with circumcised missionaries and uncircumcised missionaries. It's not an issue. Just move forward. Next example, 21 through 24. Art thou called being a servant? Well, great. Care not for it. But if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. In other words, if you really want to be free, then use your servant status to bless others spiritually. That's what real freedom entails. The way he puts it, For he that is called in the Lord, being a servant, is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price, like he said in a previous chapter. Be ye not the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called, therein abide with God. Now that's a tricky passage because of all the wordplay there. But what he's talking about is freedom or slavery. It doesn't really matter. In some ways, it's all the same to the Lord. Because if you're free, if you're free physically, you're still supposed to be the servant of the Lord. And if you're a servant physically, you can still be spiritually free. You understand what I'm saying? What I'm really getting at in this second example is don't worry about that kind of social status. I'm not worried about the physical status of circumcision or uncircumcision. I'm not worried about the social status of bond or free. If you're a servant and want to go serve, go serve if your master will let you. If you're free and want to go serve, then go free. You're free to do so. What I really care about is being a servant of God and abiding in whatever situation you started in. Okay? You don't have to change all those other things before you can go out and serve the Lord. Now, it's with that in mind, we're ready for the third example, which is what he's been aiming for all along, which is marriage. Marriage in a full-time ministry. Verse 25 and 26, now concerning virgins, and the Corinthian saints must have been wondering about virgins for him to bring it up here. Should they, should they marry? Should they stay single? What do we do? Paul says, I have no commandment of the Lord. Uh, that's hard. I, I wish he would, were crystal clear and we had set doctrine in here. We don't, so I'm doing the best I can as an apostle. So I have no commandment of the Lord, yet I give my judgment. And it's the best judgment I've got. As one that hath obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. So I trust myself. I hope you trust me too. But here's my, here's my thought. I suppose, therefore, that this is good for the present distress. And if it's for the present distress, this is a specific circumstance. This is a short-term uh, solution, okay? Just for now. I say that it is good for a man so to be. So to be what? Well, you asked about being a virgin. I'm saying that's a good thing. Now, wait a minute. Well, duh, it's a good thing to be a virgin. You just taught the law of chastity and kind of singed our eyebrows with it back in chapter 5 and chapter 6. Oh, no, no. I'm not talking about chastity versus unchastity. I'm talking about single versus married. <laughs> Virginity is a good thing. What I'm, and chastity, of course, is a good thing. 
I'm talking about people who are single versus people who are married. And my thought, and it's just my counsel, if you're an unmarried single person, that's what I mean by virgin, then my advice would be stay that way. And here's why. He starts hinting at it in verse 27 and 28. Art thou bound unto a wife? Great, seek not to be loosed. Art thou loosed from a wife? Then that's great too. Seek not a wife. Either way, you're fine. He says, but and if thou marry, thou hast not sinned. And if a virgin marry, she hath not sinned. Nevertheless, such shall have trouble in the flesh. But I spare you. Now that's super confusing. What are you talking about? Now the first part makes sense. If you're married, stay that way. If you're single, stay that way. Just like I said, if you're circumcised, stay that way. Or if you're uncircumcised, stay that way. Or if you're bond, stay that way. Or if you're free, stay that way. I'm not trying to get you to change any of those physical status or social status or marital status. My bigger focus is focusing on the work of the Lord. And in those circumstances, I would say to you who are not yet married, stay that way because then you are free to serve with all your heart, might, mind, and strength because there's no heart, might, mind, or strength going anywhere else. And again, this is service with no strings attached, no familial strings, no earthly responsibilities. That's what he's getting at with that trouble in the flesh. That, that's just temporal responsibilities. I'm trying to spare you from those things. In fact, the church is sparing us from those things in our day because who does the Lord call? Young, single missionaries. And older, empty nester missionaries. And who's off the hook? Who has been spared? People with families. That they're in the midst of raising them. That was not the day in Joseph Smith's day. I mean, Brigham Young's day. That was rough. Sick on the wagon, standing up to say hurrah to Israel. To whom? To their wives and children that were equally sick and suffering. That's rough. I'm grateful that we have been spared that in our day. Because there are a lot of familial responsibilities that come. They're beautiful responsibilities. They're incredible blessings. But when it comes to full-time missionary service, that would be tough to do. So Paul suggests that they don't do it that way. But again, if you're already, if you're betrothed, if you're married, if, if, then I'm, I'm not telling you to get divorced. And if you end up getting married before you go serve, that's not a sin either. Okay? And this is just counsel. My best advice. He then says in verse 29 to 31, But this I say, brethren, the time is short. So again, it's counsel for the short-term situation. Full-time missionary service. However long that lasts, it's not permanent. In the permanent, marriage is the idea. We already know that. But here he says, It remaineth that both they that have wives be as though they have none, and they that weep as though they wept not, and they that rejoice as though they rejoiced not, and they that buy as though they possessed not. They that use the world as not abusing it, for the fashion of this world passeth away. What was he saying there? Well, basically, that everything's going to change eventually anyway. Jesus did promise us a new heaven and a new earth, and that's what we're trying to prepare the world for. There is this sense of urgency on Paul's part, and it's with that sense of the time being so short. It's, if Christ is coming soon anyway, don't worry. You can get married in the millennium. But for now, let's get the work done. Let's usher in that final day. It's taken a lot longer than he expected. But there is this sense of, oh, the time is short. 
So sprint. Run, and if it's faster to run on your own, then go for it. <laughs> okay? Full speed ahead. Now, through this all, like I said, this is for full-time missionary service. And if you didn't trust the chapter heading, and if you're still unsure because of the way Paul is said it, saying this, if you still think, well, maybe celibacy really is the higher sacrament, well, here's the JST to make it crystal clear. Starting in verse 29, Joseph Smith's translation, but I speak unto you who are called unto the ministry. You got it? For this I say, brethren, the time that remaineth is but short that ye shall be sent forth into the ministry. So you, your, your papers are in. Your call's coming any day now. So yeah, avoid marriage for that reason. Now he says, Even they who have wives shall be as though they had none, for ye are called and chosen to do the Lord's work. So repeatedly in the inspired version. We're talking ministry here. And my advice to those who are ministers, full-time ministers, short-term ministers, is to marry yourself to the ministry and give it all you've got. As verse 32 tells us, and we'll start with JST's introduction, I would, brethren, that ye magnify your calling. So yeah, he's still focused on that. But back to the King James, I would have you without carefulness. And that carefulness is the kind of over-anxious concern that Jesus warned people about back in, in the Gospels. Remember when he said, take no thought beforehand? That's the over-anxious care. Get past that. It's what Martha was struggling with. Okay? I don't want you to have to feel that. And then he explains, he that is unmarried careth for the things that belong to the Lord. I mean, what else has he got to worry about? How he may please the Lord. But he that is married careth for the things that are of the world, how he may please his wife. I mean, he's got to. That, that he's, they're supposed to. That's a good thing to care about. You covenanted to care. Okay? The JST adds, therefore there is a difference, for he is hindered. We're just comparing married to single. They can both serve. It's just a matter of, uh, are, are there hindrances? Is there carefulness? Is there difficulty here? The King James continues, there is difference also between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman careth for the things of the world, that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But she that is married careth for the things of the world, how she may please her husband. Oh, again, keep it crystal clear. These are not wicked worldly cares. But they are important and unavoidable responsibilities. At simplest, it's easier to serve without those strings attached. So for the short term and a full-time mission, just run. Move forward. I was grateful that I had decided long before my mission, I didn't want to have any emotional strings attached. So no girlfriend for me as I headed off into the MTC. I had laid to rest and ended those relationships earlier. And I just, I, I, I'm built for speed. I'm not going to get Dear John because I don't have a Jane at home. Uh, I just want to focus entirely. And thankfully I have a, a wife who is incredibly church broken, as Elder Holland once said of Sister Holland who allows me to serve oh, <laughs> at, at her expense at times. And I'm grateful for her willingness to do that. I'm grateful. You have been so kind, by the way, in your comments, to express your gratitude to my wife and children for sacrificing time with husband and father. They, they do. And I honor them for that as you have. Thank you for that. A few last verses in this chapter, or this lesson ends then. Verse 35 and 36. 
and this I speak for your profit, not that I may cast a snare upon you. I'm not trying to make it harder. I'm trying to make it easier. But that which is comely, that you may attend upon the Lord without distraction. See, I'm not trying to keep you on the leash permanently. I'm not trying to forbid marriage. No, that day will come. But go out and serve first. Then come home. You'll be ready to focus on something like a family. You'll be better prepared for it. He says, But if any man think that he behaveth himself uncomely toward his virgin, if she pass the flower of her age, and need so require, let him do what he will. He sinneth not. Let them marry. Now that's a really weird verse. It's tricky. The New International Version says, If anyone is worried that he might not be behaving properly toward his fiancée, if his passions are too strong, and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. That goes back to that, it is better to marry than to burn. But there is this idea, it's not a sin to get married, believe me. It's if you're feeling like the time is short, and you're, some have suggested this is in the situation of where you're already engaged. And I'm engaged, and now I'm going to serve, what should I do? Well, it's up to you. If you can wait, and if you feel she will, then go out and serve and come back and then get married. But here, if maybe you're too close physically and the thought of postponing marriage, that's going to be too hard on you. Or she's of age and she's ready to be married, then fine, be married. It's not a sin. It just might be tricky. And then to separate, to go out and serve. It's going to be as if the married now is not. She's going to feel like she doesn't have a husband. You're going to feel like you don't have a wife, but you do. And that can be emotionally difficult for both parties. My suggestion is to avoid it. Then he gives the opposite version in 37. Nevertheless, he that standeth steadfast in his heart, having no necessity, but hath power over his own will, and hath so decreed in his heart that he will keep his virgin, fine, that you doeth well. If your mind's made up, if nothing's forcing you to marry right now, you have sufficient self-control, you want to stay engaged while you serve, then great, go for it. That's a good thing. And she'll be waiting for you. She'll be ready. Again, either way, the, the, Paul, Paul here is prioritizing focused, undistracted, laser-like <laughs> service on the Lord. And then he ends the chapter. 38 through 40. So then he that giveth her, or the JST, giveth himself in marriage, doeth well. But he that giveth her, or JST, himself, not in marriage, doeth better. That's where Catholics say, see, celibacy is the higher sacrament and marriage comes in second. We would say, no, Paul is speaking of a specific situation. When it comes to full-time ministry, marry the ministry. <laughs> That's better. If you're married to someone else and the ministry, that's still good, okay? You're doing well. At least you're out serving. But as he puts it, the wife is bound by the law as long as her husband liveth, but if her husband be dead, she is at liberty to be married to whom she will, only in the Lord. Now, if you remember back in Romans, he used the same kind of language, but to teach a different principle. He was talking about the analogy of if you're married to the law, but then the law dies, you're now free to go get remarried to the gospel. Remember, I'm not cheating on Moses. Well, he's using the same language, but a different, a different principle here. If this is literal, someone, your, your spouse has died. So literally, you're at liberty to go marry whomever you will. If you want to marry somebody else, fine. But if you want to marry yourself to the Lord for a time and give him all you've got, be my guest. As he puts it, she is happier if she so abide. Well, after my judgment. And I think also that I have the Spirit of God. 
which is such a classic way to end this chapter. He's been really careful, and I'm grateful for Paul's carefulness. Sometimes it's tough to tell, like, are you speak? is this a thus saith the Lord? Are you wearing your prophet hat or just your person hat? And Paul is trying to be crystal clear. When I'm speaking on God's behalf, when I'm just giving you my best personal advice, and here has, as he ends it, this is my judgment. And I, but I do love the kind of tongue-in-cheek at the end. But I'm pretty sure I've got the Spirit. I'm living as worthy as I can, and I, I feel strongly about this advice. I love church leaders and parents and, and prophets and apostles who do their best to live in tune with the Spirit of God so that their advice, even if it falls short of thus saith the Lord, can be thus whispereth the Spirit to me. Can we live in a discerning way so we're open to the whisperings of the Spirit and the counsel of God? Even in areas that haven't been set out in stone with a thus saith the Lord. There's, there's going to be a lot of those as we navigate our own personal experiences. And we've seen some exa examples of that today. Now, I, I pray that our introduction to 1 Corinthians has been a blessing to you. I love these chapters. We spend a lot of time on epistemology and milk and meat and so on, marriage and mixed faith and so on. If I could just give you a quick, a quick run by way of review, as we do with the book of Romans, we're, we're adding to our Pauline quote book, and he's got so many amazing one-liners. This time, I'm not even going to give you chapter and verse. I'm just going to reread the phrases that I hope will sink into your soul, linger a little longer in your mind. That ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. We have the mind of Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. The fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? Judge nothing before the time. Being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. And ye are puffed up, and have not rather mourned? Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Ye are not your own, for ye are bought with a price. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. God hath called us to peace, and I would have you without carefulness. My dear brothers and sisters, may we be careful in the Lord's way. 
with the things that he wants us to be careful about. Can we be careful about milk and meat and know what to offer people and what they need? Can we be careful between the wisdom of man and the power of God? Can we be careful in our relationships and in especially within our marriages? Can we give God all that, all that we can? In some ways, let me just ask this final question. Because it's my prayer that we can answer it in the Lord's way. Do we have the mind of Christ? Are we at least allowing him to develop it within us? Do we think like him and judge like him and, and love like him? Are we coming to know the Savior well enough that his thoughts are our thoughts? His ways are becoming our ways. And we truly are developing the heart, the might, and the mind of Christ.